What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they have to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome guys and girls to this very first episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. I'm Renee, better known as The Wacko Online, together with my co-host Adam Carmichael, Mindset and Performance Specialist. And today we have a guest on, high stakes tournament player, has various has won various tournaments both live and online. Dutch uh, goes by the name Bill Lewinsky, online, known as Joris Ruis in the Netherlands. Adam, what are you looking forward to with this guest? First of all, I'm very excited that this is our first episode. Myself and Rene have been putting this concept out there for a while. We finally got around to getting our first guest. And yeah, our guest took a long time, eight years, to go from the low stakes through to the high stakes. So I'm really intrigued to know uh, what obstacles he had to overcome on that journey. From a mindset perspective, I want to know what skills, mentally and performance-wise, he's had to develop to get to the top. And yeah, he's a very smart guy. So I'm looking forward to uh, picking his brains on some topics and seeing what lessons we can distill in a very coherent and usable way for the audience. So how about you, Rene? What are you interested in? I'm very curious, especially in terms of how he, yeah, how he approaches poker, right? I mean, I'm a poker player myself, so that's naturally what my curiosity will lean towards. Uh, you know, seeing what kind of things he tries to do in order to stay ahead of the competition, how he approach studying the game, all these kind of things. So uh, I would say without further ado, let's bring yours on. Welcome yours to the first episode of the podcast. Thank you. Glad Good to have you on. Couldn't have wished for a better first guest. You were uh, number one on my list. So very happy that we could have made this work. I'm... Um, just going to start straight off. I'm uh, curious, as you mentioned to us be, uh, before we started the recording, that basically before poker, you were already into playing like strategic games and stuff. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that to the to the audience? I mean, like uh, um, the strategic games are always like a, a fun thing for me. Like, uh, I mean, like sort of at the launch of the internet, you would have like a lot of these sort of really geeky text-based games and like it's, it's really hardcore nerd stuff like <laughs> i don't know like the runescape and uh, and I, I would just be in love with computers from a very young age basically and uh, the strategic games were like a sort of a way to spend like a lot of time behind the computer and play around with numbers a lot which i seem to enjoy and um so yeah then i, I became quite good at that stuff uh, i don't know why it just like a large time investment, I guess, and, uh, and and just having like a natural, uh, natural good perception of numbers. So I, I used to play that a lot uh, before I found poker. A natural good perception of numbers. 
Mm -hmm. uh, definitely a skill that you've probably managed to transfer into your poker career, I assume. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, um, it's 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 not that I'm like a math genius or anything. Uh, it's 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 hard to describe. But like, if if you ask me to give like an estimate of something, say how many windows are there in New York or something like that, you know, like like just a really big abstract numbers question, I I would come up with a pretty decent answer. How many windows are there in New York? Yours, Raz. The audience <laughs> wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have to have a bit of time to do to do like a proper calculation, but I go like, all right, there's a what what's there like 14 million people in in New York. So you go like, uh, how many windows does an average house have? Well, I'd, I'd say about you know like uh, New York, there's small apartments, so I'd say about four to five average because there's like a lot of houses with just one window and then a couple of houses with a bunch of windows, of course. So uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say somewhere around 80, uh, 80, 80 to 100 million windows. All right, you heard it here first, 80 to 100 million windows in New York. So taking this, uh, uh, this, this skill for numbers, you know, you were uh, uh, already playing a lot of online games. Then you got into touch with poker at some point. What was it then about? I assume that then it was like, okay, the, the games were kind of taking a second place and you were starting to play more online poker. What was it about poker that was so much, I would say, better or so much nicer to do than the other games that you were playing? Uh, I mean, I, I guess there was like a really fun psychological element. Also the fact that like, uh, you know, the fact that it was for real money, it really added like some sort of extra level of pressure, extra level of excitement. Uh, this idea that, you know, nobody would... Uh, like if, if you're playing just a regular game, I don't know if you've ever had this, but you play like a regular game with your family and two people, they don't really care. Like the game, the game all of a sudden is no longer interesting. You know, like if, if, no, if, if not every, every participant is sort of trying their hardest, uh, it becomes much less interesting. And the thing with poker is like once people put up their money, people really care. And they really, really care about the outcome and the result and about playing good. So yeah. I thought the element of it was very interesting. And then, uh, of course, it started making me a bit of money, which was also <laughs> an interesting aspect to an 18-year-old me who was consistently out of money. <laughs> like, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you were going to get addicted to some video game, which I think a lot of our listeners, including myself, were at some point, right, in, in, in their, when they were younger, it's, it's pretty handy that that game actually earns you money instead of the opposite way around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's sort of where a lot of the addiction turns into workaholism or like being a workaholic for a lot of people. It's like uh, uh, there, there's like uh, this really close boundary between, uh, you know, like if, if you play a lot of poker and you lose a bit of money, people will see it as an addiction. And if you play a lot of poker and win a bit of money, then people see it as like, oh, that's a real professional job. Like you can actually do that. Yeah, there's a very thin line, thin line between dedication, gamble addiction, game addiction, workaholic. So you would say it determines the 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 outcome determines the definition, basically. For society, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, I mean, that's that's basically how society views it. I think it's like if you're if you're successful at something, then it becomes uh, an asset, and if you're unsuccessful at something, it becomes an addiction. Right? Mm.
I, I, I think also a lot of people can relate to that. Playing poker for play money doesn't work. It's not the same, right? And that's kind of that care factor that 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 you've been mentioning. No, yeah, unless you move up to like the really high uh, play money stakes, like there's 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 like I think there's like this whole niche community of like really good players that play for play money <laughs> and they play really high stakes and and that's actually a really hard level to get to get to. So then then people actually you know really care. Uh, uh, I mean, even though it's not about money, there's like such a huge time investment and such a huge uh, sort of status investment for them that, that they actually care about the result. Did you grind through those play money levels yourself to get to the, the high stakes play money? Tables, uh, no, 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 no. But when, when I first started playing poker, I, I, I did do sort of half and half play money and, uh, and normal money just to, to, to try out a bit and to try out different softwares and to see what was going on. And uh, I actually enjoyed back then when I just started out. I actually enjoyed the play money street and uh, I built up a bit of a role there. But, uh, but yeah, it quickly became a bit quickly became much more exciting to be uh, to be playing for real money. <laughs> I guess when you start realizing right that people are that other people at the table aren't taking it as serious as you are, and you want to play quote quote good poker. Right, and then you, you just people have, people just open open shove, just go in three way, and you're like, yeah, this is no fun. Let's go to the real money tables because at least there, you know, the game becomes a little bit more strategic. You would you would yeah, yeah. and and it's it's just the level of excitement. It's like it, that's still true for me today. Like if you play a higher stakes tournament, it's it's sort of more fun. It's like there's just a higher level of excitement. There's, you sort of crave the pressure a bit. Like you sort of crave the. Uh, uh, caring about the result more and more. So, yeah, I mean, that's still, that still holds up. I, I feel like also at some point, if you reach really high stakes, it, for some people, it starts to feel like play money again. You understand yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like at some point, you, you, you reach a level, especially of recreational players that just have billions, that they pretend like it's play money again. And then you, you would almost say like, for example, would you say that an average recreational or will at higher stakes is probably bigger than at mid stakes? Yes and no. Like, uh, like usually these people, like even if the money means nothing to them, they they still really care about uh, how they're performing or like what what sort of the result is. Like, uh, they also make a time investment. They make an emotional investment. You know, like, uh, I mean, I don't know how it is for cash, but like for tournaments specifically, you know, like even even if a guy has a really big will and and he managed to make day three, for example, he still spent like two two days holding on to his stack, two days you know, performing in that tournament. So like, even if the money means nothing to him, he still cares about uh, whatever the result is of that, of that investment. So like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say that wheels are bigger, so to say, I, I, I don't know, like that, that would be very nice, <laughs> but uh, uh, I mean, they, they also come with like, uh, like wheels on higher stakes, they come with a different skill set that sometimes can make it a lot harder to play against. That's definitely true, and I, I do indeed agree that, especially the time investment. If you go and play a tournament, there's probably a difference here in cash games and tournaments as well. I would say, but go, going back to uh, when you just started playing out and what you also said with the play money, right? It feel, really feels like a game because you can collect a certain amount of chips to get to the next level. So when you started out, you played a little bit of play money, then a little bit of real money. 
when at some point, I guess you let go of play money, you know, that was no longer in your aspirations, I guess. Did you then just start at like the lower stakes and just look like, hey, interesting. I can gather this amount of chips or money or points, however you saw it at that time, to get to the next stake, the next stake. Or were you or were you just playing and taking it day by day? Yeah, I mean no, that wasn't really like a like a conscious plan or something. That was not like a sort of goal set out like okay this is the level i'm at now this is the level i want to reach like I, I was just sort of you know just playing making a bit of money then losing a bit of money again and just going following a bit of the ups and downs and uh yeah so so uh i mean and and i let go of the play money quite quickly <laughs> it's not like i spent ages there but uh but yeah like uh, it, it was just it was just fun like it, it was just like a, a way to spend some time for some enjoyment it was like I, I sort of really enjoyed figuring out the strategic dynamics like pretty quickly I, I, I found like a lot of resources some videos about other people playing like uh, you know some articles on the internet and I started trying to incorporate that and I, I just thought the the process of that was super interesting and and so and that's actually that held true for like a long, long time throughout my career that I just, I just really enjoyed the game. And there was never like a moment like, all right, this is where I need to be, or this is where I want to go. That only came in like the last few years, actually. And like, uh, for a long time, it was just, you know, just something that I did and that I really enjoyed. And, uh, and like the, the fun element for me was also like, a one of the reasons I think I was able to, to, to evolve as a player and, and, and to, to stay consistent and to stay focused sort of is because it was never it was never about it was never totally about the money. It was always like the the, the enjoyment of just playing is so beautiful. I can I can definitely relate strongly to that. So there was that was there at some point a conscious decision like okay now I'm turning pro or that is did did it just kind of happen? It's like you were like oh I guess I've been pro for the last six months. No, I mean, like, uh, there, there was a moment where, uh, like, I, I finished high school and was, I was about to start my studies and I was working, like, part-time as a, as a chef in a restaurant. And I was spending quite a lot of time there and, and actually really enjoying it. But, uh, you know, like, the, the, the hours I would not work, I would just make so much more money. So I sort of, you know, slowly phased out the, <laughs> the side work. And then pretty quickly after that, like... Uh, Pretty quickly after I sort of faced it out, I, I, I mean, I was playing tournaments, so I won like, I, I had like a really big score, like a really big big, like I, I won like a hundred k in one night when my bankroll was like eight eight k or something <laughs> or seven k. So like at that point, it was just like, alright, now it just doesn't feel to me. Now there's just no sense in going back to eight eight or nine euros an hour <laughs> once you have that amount of money in the bank. Yeah, especially in tournaments, when you make a bink like that, you know, you're just hooked, right? It's like, okay, this is this is the new reality. You know, this is being a poker player. I'm going to bink 100k on a monthly basis. Yeah, that was... Was, was that kind of a, maybe an illusion that you might have? Or at least if, if I speak for myself, especially in the beginning, it was just like, oh, poker, easy. You sit down, you make money. 100%, 100%. Like, uh, uh, like the... The, that first bank was just such a trip because like <laughs> I mean my, my biggest score before that was like 6k and then I played like a Sunday and I won one tournament for 11k and it was back then when there was no day twos or anything so tournaments would go on forever 
and like uh, so it was like 1 a.m and i won like 11 or 12k or something and i was like whoa this is really sick this is like a really big amount of money and then there was still one w cup tournament that was in and so the same day somewhere at like 2 p.m on, on the monday because you have because there was no day two so tournaments would play for like 24 hours or something <laughs> and uh I ended up at a, like a huge final table, like a, like a W Cup version of the Sunday Million, and um, came like fifth for 95k or something, something, something crazy like that. Uh, and at that point, I just felt like, oh wow, I, I, I'm on top of the world, and, and that's like a sort of a high I stayed in for a long time. And then it it sort of turned into this thing where I, I just had completely unrealistic expectations about you know what my Expectation, expected value in, in a year would be what my expected value in a tournament would be. Uh, <laughs> made some pretty big mistakes. And <laughs> if, if I could look back on it now, there's some great mental advice I would give myself. Well, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, indeed a podcast about uh, reflecting, right? Looking back. So mm -hmm. that's definitely something that we're going to do. Uh, I'm sure Adam, Adam, as you know, uh, a performance coach, was listening like, wait, you played 24 hours. Then you can yeah. find the table. Performance-wise, that much suffer a little bit, right? I, I I haven't checked the recent studies on sleep, but I heard something yeah. about your sleep deprived is the same as if you're drunk at some point. Yeah, I'd say playing 24 hours is going to have some serious cognitive uh, decline. But the good news is the rest of the field are also suffering. So you've got to out-survive the rest of them, which is, yeah, the hard job. And to whoever is best playing drunk, basically, yeah. at some yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yours. It sounds like. I mean, I mean, there go. It's so crazy that they used to do that. Like, like for a long time, like, like, like the four, the first four years of my career, or the first four or five years of my career, like there were just basically no day twos in tournaments, in online tournaments. So like mm -hmm. tournaments would regularly run for eighteen to like, uh, like eighteen to twenty-four hours or something, and then like. I mean, I was I was very young back then. I was like 18, 19, 20. So that was a big advantage for sure, is that I could just yeah. stay up all night. And, and uh, you you would have like these absolute meltdowns <laughs> in late stages in tournaments of people just either falling asleep or just really being unable to focus or process information or anything like that. It's a very interesting difference between MTTs and cash games uh, because your basically your B and C game have to just be so much better in tournaments because you just play so long hours. Like if I've played three hours of cash games, I'm like it's time for a break because I don't feel sharp anymore. But in a tournament, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Oh yeah, tournament tournaments is crazy, crazy performance wise. Like uh, I mean, there's also the element of like your B and C game just have to be very good because uh, you can't just decide. All right, uh, it's not my session today. I'm I'm gonna quit or something like. like uh, there's this very hard unregistering a tournament once it started. So like, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's also some like an aspect that I really neglected for a long time, mm -hmm. because I was just so naturally good at it. Because I, I would just have this this ability to focus for like really long periods and to, to stay sharp for really long periods. But then, uh, yeah. Then then I sort of found out that. That, like, that 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 capacity to do that was sort of declining, and uh, the the need for it became more. Uh, I mean, uh, how to say it became more. It became a more important factor, mm -hmm. because because like back then there was just like such a huge skill gap. If if you were just 
uh, you know, slightly into the, to the material and into the weeds, it would just be so much better than the rest. Mm -hmm. So like uh, how how you would perform mentally and stuff was less important because because you could just uh, uh, it was just so easy basically. And, uh, and and lately that skill gap has really closed down, and like uh, so then the performance becomes so much more important. Yeah, yeah, I've got a curious question in line with that. So uh, it sounds like when you first got into poker, it was for the fun, it was an enjoyable game, and you were very competitive, and you didn't really think about the money, but you were making money. But then it seems like a big transition happened when you had that big 100K score, and then it sounds like your expectations started to get a bit carried away. So yeah, I just want to talk about that that chapter of your life where all of a sudden you're now in a position where you've got 100,000 plus role, you're a 20-year-old kid, how did that change your relationship with the game and what happens after that moment? Um, I don't know. Like I, I became very competitive. Like uh, there was a, sort of this desire within me to, to show that I'm not, I wasn't like a, a one score wonder or something like, uh, um, so yeah, I, I started competing at, at higher stakes, which probably wasn't a great idea at the time, but, uh, I learned a lot from it. <laughs> like, uh, it, it sort of gave me, it gave me a bit of learning money. And uh, I also treated it like that a bit because I, st I started playing like heads up cash a bit because I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed like the, the challenge of, you know, the one on one battle. Uh, you know, of course, playing heads up is very exciting because you just get to play so many hands in so many interesting spots. So, yeah, I, I would just sit anybody at two, four, five, ten, <laughs> see what happens. And, uh, and, and obviously, I, I mean, I didn't lose like a huge amount, but I lost, I lost a little bit uh, back to the to the <laughs> to the high stakes community. But I actually got in like a really decent amount of volume, which uh, which made me a lot like uh, which made me a lot better player. Like uh, that was like a huge boost in my in my ability and my skill. And uh, but yeah, in tournaments there was a sense like even after the hundred k, I. I, I I did very well, and I think I went through like a, a prolonged period of like a, a really like a combination between like a really sick upswing and the fact that I was actually you know I wasn't very good, but I was doing things that uh, that were, was were working really well against the people I was playing. Mm -hmm. Like like mm -hmm. there was not like a, a sort of really good strategic framework, or there was not really like a uh, I didn't have like. Uh, a very good sense of what poker was about or, or, or how, how to be better at poker. But I was just doing a lot of things that were working really well. Uh, mm. I was playing hyper aggressive, you know, like like really pushing buttons on, on, or like really pushing the limit on like mm. sort of what hands you could play and, and just being completely over aggressive. And, and back then, like the, the field was just very passive and people mm. would would, uh, would really struggle to defend against aggression. So like, uh, I think it just worked very well, and then I, I went through a period where I actually won quite a bit, and uh, like even on like a consistent basis, and then like uh, what back then were like sort of high stakes, like these days they they would be considered <laughs> total mid mid stakes, but like uh, or even low stakes. But uh, I did quite well, and uh, but then then came a period where sort of the 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 upswing ended. And I, I gained such an enormous belief in what I was doing. And at the same time, you know, people were catching up to what I was doing. 
and uh, and and that's really a, was like a, a sort of a frustrating period for me because like then all of a sudden like nothing worked anymore, and yeah. I just tried to go more extreme and extreme in, in whatever what I was doing before, and uh, yeah, so so that uh, that was like my first significant downswing, and I actually lost quite quite a chunk of, of what I won back then. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through how you dealt with that. So it sounds like the big score was a bit of a almost like a rocket fuel moment where it catapulted you to higher stakes. It sounds like you did very well after that and continued to build your role, mm -hmm. playing very aggressively, moving up stakes. And then some point after down the line, you hit this downswing. I'm guessing at this moment, your ego is quite inflated. Your expectations are very high. Talk us through how that downswing went in terms of how it affected you and how did you get yourself out of that downswing? I mean, like, like uh, it's hard for me to say now because uh, I wasn't so much aware of it back then. Like there was, there was no awareness of like all right i'm in an upswing now i'm in a downswing now uh, um i mean the, there was an awareness in that sense of results but not in the sense of performance or like uh, i just felt like i was getting super unlucky and uh, i had never encountered this this sort of emotion before so i was uh, i was a bit more angry when playing i was a little bit more easy tilted i would have like this uh, you know anger outburst of just shouting behind your computer <laughs> or shouting at the screen so like, um, I wouldn't say I got myself out of the downswing. Mm -hmm. It's just that, uh, uh, you know, I, I learned to, to I experienced it a bunch of times. And then I sort of found ways that worked for me. But, but it wasn't like a conscious decision, like, okay, mm -hmm. I need to solve this. It's just like, I, uh, even by chance, I found a path which, which worked for me. And that was yeah. like, I, I really uh, spent a lot more time studying back then. Like, uh, mm -hmm. like it really became like part of my part of the game for me it was like, like just and, and like the, the study would be totally incoherent and, and unorganized. But like mm -hmm. every day I would be watching like my favorite players, seeing what they were doing or like uh, I would watch all the videos, like all the content that was available online. I would just consume, consume, consume all of it and like really put in like a large volume of, um, yeah, just brute force, brute hours. <laughs> Try to get better, and uh, and it, I think it was at that point that I, I think I stumbled across like a couple of Phil Galton videos. It was like mm -hmm. when when he first started out playing, or when he first started making videos. I think it was for like Blue Fire Poker or something. Like uh, it's a really old site. This is like nine years ago or something. And like um, uh, and and he would talk about poker in like this sort of dual sense. He he would all of a sudden. He would not only talk about the theory or like this is what I want to do with this hand. He would also talk about how he would feel during that hand and what his sort of his biases were and like uh, you know what what he felt uh, like he needed to do to play that hand well. And that was that was mm -hmm. like a really uh, that sort of opened my eye. And and from that point on, I became a lot more calmer and a lot more self-reflective in that sense. That mm -hmm. like all right, you've just had a downswing, but maybe. You know, you just lost a bunch because you were playing bad and you <laughs> you were you you, you didn't deserve any, to win anything anyway. So like uh, uh, that that really you know slowed me down a bit, like slowed the testosterone down a bit, and, and opened up like the sort of uh, reflective channel on myself. Yeah, I think that's also yeah. like it was interesting that you said that the the, fir the first adjustment was you had something that worked. And it wasn't working. We're like, hmm, maybe I'm not aggressive enough. Maybe I should even be more aggressive because, you know, aggression was what got you results. So your default response was, okay, apparently I'm not aggressive enough. 
right? And then at yeah, some point, yeah, it also sounds like that 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 you know that then it's like I can imagine that if your your tricks you know that you were doing aren't working, then at some point you also describe the anger, right? It's like yeah, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll just get very angry or like what's mm-hmm. going on. And it sounds like it, by watching other players, by by hearing about what Phil Gavin had to say, how he thought about the game, that you were actually like hmm. You actually could point at yourself, wait, actually, maybe I'm just playing, but did that give you maybe like a sense of calmness and in terms of also get more clarity and it's like, oh, wait, this is where I have to go. I see a path forward now. So yeah. it's all good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it was a huge relief for me. Like it took me a long time to sort of incorporate it fully. Like uh, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's always with these, like you have these aha moments, but then it takes like a while to become part of your personality or part of your process. So, uh, but that was like the first moment that that really uh, opened up to me. And like, yeah. and about going like over aggressive, like there's this hilarious video of me. I think it must be somewhere on YouTube still. But like, uh, like this was all pre Twitch, pre whatever. Like I recorded like a session for for like a Dutch poker website. They asked me like, hey, uh, you're, one, uh, you're one of the big players from the Netherlands now. Can you, uh, you know, talk a bit of, can you record your screen and, and talk a bit of strategy? basically just twitch but before twitch was a thing and i think it opens up with the hand like four minutes into the video where uh, under the it's like first few levels of like 100 rebuy or something and uh, it opens up with a hand where under the gun opens i decide to three bet the six five off in the small blind the under the gun four bets i'm all in for uh, in 90 days <laughs> the guy calls kings and i'm like yeah sometimes that just happens but, like very often uh, very, like like you really have to push this preflop aggression because uh, like otherwise people can just forbid anything and, and and you'll be fine and like that was sort of like a really blasé thing to say like you know, i just got in the six five off for 80 bigs and it's all good like like sometimes when i like to remind myself i look back at that video <laughs> you can rebuy right so no no it was it was not in the rebuy period but like uh, it was somewhere somewhere early stages <laughs> and uh and, that, and that's just an example of like, you know, I would go completely overboard with the preflop aggression and that would work quite well until it stopped working. And then it started really losing me a huge amount. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, if you, if you up your frequencies with sort of GTO approved hands, you know, it's not like people are like, okay, you know, it's, it's a little bit loose, but you know, but if you, if you see the six, five off, you're like, okay, this is, this guy's completely out of his mind. Right. If you get six five off, then where, then where do you draw the line? Yeah, back then there was no concept there, of what GTO. Yeah, there, was, there were no lines. There were no boundaries. It was yeah. like, oh, it's ace five suited. Okay, and it seems quite GTO. No, like like yeah. ace, ace five suited would be too good of a hand to do it with because like that you're sort of wasting a hand. Uh, yeah, you, you, you can just call, right? Yeah. Why would you jam? You you can just call. Like the six five off, you can, you know. If, yeah, if you, if you just get the false preflop, you're you're sort of happy. Like, <laughs> So it sounds like that first obstacle that you encountered was a bit of a catalyst for your studying and for going deeper and working on yourself. And then also for watching the Phil Galfan stuff, got you to be more inquisitive about your maybe your biases and overcoming your aggression. So at what point did you realize that you were pushing your aggression too far? And how did you start to counter that? How did you start to ease off that aggression to find that more balanced strategy for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I just became very curious. Like there was like a period where I just, uh, you know, I got on two plus two a bit. I, I started, you know, reading all the threads of the high stakes players back then. Like high stakes players would still 
happily discuss their strategy in public and like all the resources were just you know publicly available and, and people would just uh, give their insights on a lot of things and then uh, you know i started posting a bit i started writing a couple of these guys like hey would you be interested to to, to look at my stuff or to, to study together uh, i mean most of them said no <laughs> but that because they just thought i was this weird fish that was playing in tournaments and stuff and um but yeah eventually I, I found like a few people to to collaborate with and uh, and and you know in that's when I really got into the feedback loop of like, uh, you know, people would ask me like, why did you do that? And I would explain my reasoning and I would sort of notice that I would always try to be right. You know, I would always try to give like an explanation that both justified my play and made me sound very smart. And at one point I just realized like, wait a second, I'm, I'm, I'm not studying here. I'm just, uh, I'm just defending my own ego or like my own, uh, idea of, of what I should be as a poker player and, and that's really when I, I decided to take a conscious step back and like all right if somebody has input on a hand especially somebody you respect like just listen to it <laughs> and, uh, and see what it brings you and really in that sort of collaborative sense I, I, I found out that like a lot of my tendencies were based on absolute nonsense and some of them were actually very good ideas and like uh, you know, some some of the things I was doing were actually, if I look back at them now, I, I, I look like, yeah, that was actually very smart. Um, uh, you were actually quite far ahead of like what we would later find out to be GTO plays or to be, uh, but yeah, so uh, I, I, I found more, more balance in that, I guess. Yeah, sometimes players, especially new school generation, they think like, how did you guys play poker before solvers, right? But... <laughs> especially the better players, we were already doing a lot of stuff that was very solver-approved, right? And especially, I think there's still, maybe even up until today, there's still players, a bit old-school players, that like, I don't need the solver. and But it's like, the solver often that does exactly what they would also do. And that's why they say, like, I don't really need the solver. Um, because they were sort of already playing solver-approved strategies somehow, because... They understood the game, right? They understood how a hand generates EV, which basically what a solver does very well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and, uh, I, I think this, this this discussion about solvers and no solvers is like a, sort of a dead dead horse at this point. Like uh, it's been discussed to the end of times, but uh, you know, like be, before before you had a solver, you basically asked yourself, like, okay, how do I make money in this hand? Like what, what, what is what is a good way to play? And I still think that's a very relevant question and, and a question that sort of people forget to ask themselves every once in a while. But then the solver is also, it's just a tool to, to test whenever you have this idea of like, okay, what is a good way to play the hand? And you come up with an answer. And then the solver is just a really good way. It's like, all right, uh, does this actually make sense? Or am I forgetting something? Or uh, am I seeing something that's not there? Or like, uh, is there some somewhere deeper down the tree? Or like, uh, you know, the the solver gives you a lot of comprehension to to the question you ask yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially also in terms of d discussing hands. Like nowadays, people may, might even not feel the need to discuss hands. Like, why? I can just consult the dream machine, and he tells me exactly what is the case. But I think it's definitely very valuable to discuss hands if you indeed discuss it in a way that you're actually open to learn. Because I think. 
a lot of people like the story that you just told i can definitely relate to in the beginning like you you're not you're not discussing a hand to find the truth you're just discussing a hand in order to prove that you're right and if two players are discussing hands and trying to prove to the other that they're right you will get a very interesting conversation that no one will actually learn from right yeah. and i think at some point in there in, in in everyone's play poker playing careers you will have that confrontation with the ego uh that's like wait what's going on here you know you, you get into a heated argument trying to defend your place until at some point you just realize shit i'm not making any progress this way so when you realize that how did your discussions change in in the future about hands like and how how did you know it had a big like positive impact i imagine on your career so to, to get back at that sort of type of discussion is, is very logical in some sense right it's like you know, if you are a poker player, you are sort of there's this egomaniac where you're like, all right, I'm the best at the table. I'm going to sit there, win all your guys' money. And like, I'm going to crush you. And, and you sort of get this very singular egoistic person that thinks he's better than everyone else. So then, like, if that's the sort of mentality that it takes to be a good poker player, the, the person to be a, a good discussion partner or like a good study partner is like the complete opposite, right? It's like, uh, he's curious, he's humble, he's like, uh, asking questions he's trying to figure out stuff so like you need to to have to combine these two personalities into one to be to be really successful in both areas and, and that's not an easy ask for most people and uh, so so it's, it's not strange for me that that these sort of discussions happen very often where like two guys are just discussing a hand and not coming to any sort of conclusion and um you know like I just found the right people, to be honest. Like uh, at one point, I just clicked with a few people, and um, uh, I mean, there was one point that was very, very important to me. Is like um, after posting a bit on two plus two, a guy approached me. Uh, he was like an Australian super high stakes player, and he approached me, and he was like, hey, "Are you interested in getting staked?" And you know, I wasn't doing too great at the time. I didn't have much. Uh, role life-wise I, mean, I was still comfortable I, I never really got to the point where i was like completely down in the dumps but i uh, I, I was i was sort of hitting a lower point at least confidence wise and uh he asked me if uh, uh if i wanted to get staked and like he was this really smart guy like he knew so much more about poker than everybody else did at that point and like uh, i got staked by him and got added into this group and he would have like these regular sessions of like uh you know when it, all of a sudden there was a little bit of accountability and also i was i was in a group with like really great players so so there was i mean there was no room for me to be arrogant because there was nothing to be arrogant about you know like I, I was all of a sudden i was studying with these guys that you know that won the pca and that won like a million dollars online and like they were playing 100 200 plo and like all these all these crazy games like uh, and, and i was just you know i, I was just some guy <laughs> just, yeah, just you're, some you're young kid. and uh and, and then there was like uh, i mean there's a couple ways to go about that for sure but I, I just felt so grateful i just felt so happy to be in that environment and to, to, to have these connections and, and i learned such an incredible amount from them that's still something that like okay so you you entered this group i assume you gained a lot of knowledge uh, you were in general very curious about the game, right? So you're very open to that knowledge. And I your career went into quite a, you know, you you got out of 
out of the struggles. I think confidence-wise, it also helps, right? If you mm -hmm. get strategy with a lot of very good players, you kind of take a little bit of their confidence with you because you know they're so good and you're you're learning strategies from them. So it, it helps your confidence in a way. Like if you go to a downswing nowadays, do you do you still then go to back to that group or do you still go back to other people, discuss hands? Like how 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 do you now handle a downswing compared to then? Like what do you look for? I mean, I mean, I'm I'm much more conscious of what a downswing is right now than I was back then. Like back then, I, I, I consider the downswing just bad luck in your cards, basically. It's like, all right, we're losing money. We're in a downswing now. We're, we're winning money. We're in an upswing now. I, I now much more recognize that it's like a whole process that comes along with it. That like the fact that you're losing money also hits on your confidence, which hits, hits on your ability to perform, which hits on your ability to execute. So like uh, I, I now maintain like a much more balanced routine to, to make sure that I uh, that whenever I'm losing, that I uh, know to pay extra attention to these kind of things. That I, you know, that whenever I'm, I'm I feel like I'm I'm not playing my best or like in, in an unlucky streak, so to speak. You know, to start playing a little bit of less tables and to make sure to focus on quality, to to focus on uh, improving your IRI in, instead of the volume. So, so uh, because because like. Uh, you know, if, if your ROI goes up, volume goes down, like the downswings become much uh, less significant, of course. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these days I, I have like a lot of things besides talking to players or trying to improve my game that, that help me. And also my, my study routine. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter if I'm in a downswing or not. I, I just have a routine uh, that I stick to study-wise. So like, uh, uh, yeah, I... I mean, these days I don't really feel like there's ever really a downswing or an upswing. <laughs> it's just it's just like one big session. Like uh, you just play and like uh, see see where it leads. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like like still still discussing strategy with good players and sort of you know like like once you once you find out a couple of things like all right this is where uh, I'm gonna be so much better. Or this is like an area where. I'm really gonna win money against against the opponents I'm playing against. That that that's that's always a great way, of course. But, they, but that's not something you should do only when in a downswing. <laughs> so that's... And that's the thing, right? I guess earlier on in your career, you do things. You're you're more reactive. It sounds like you were more reactive earlier on in your career, and now you just you know you said like uh, ups and downs. It doesn't really matter. I just see it as a long term session. I think also at some point, you know, when you go with the ups and downs of poker, it's, it can be very stressful, right? Uh, I guess at some point, it's also like you have to find a way to start handling that stress. You have to change your perspective on the ups and downswings. And it sounds like you've you've really found it. Like, it doesn't throw you off anymore. It's like, an, you, would you say that an upswing doesn't anymore make you feel like you're the best poker player in the world and a downswing doesn't anymore make you feel like the worst poker in the world? Is that like the swings just got way way less? It doesn't influence you. I mean, in an ideal world, yes. Like, but uh, I'm I'm still human. Like, I still care about upswings and downswings. Like, it's not like I'm immune for it. It's just like the extremes are sort of less. Uh, the, the polarity is, is 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 less big, I guess. But like, uh, I mean, it still hurts losing a bunch of money, of course, and it still feels great winning a bunch of money. 
um, you still, I mean, it's very hard to get out, especially in tournaments because the swings are so intense. Like it's very hard to get out of your own head and say like, all right, I just won like such a huge amount, but I'm not the best player in the world. I'm just the same guy that I was before. Like, or like once you get crushed for like a streak and like you just feel like you're making the wrong play every single time and like everybody seems to, you know, you get this voice in your head like, are, are they recording my screen? What's going on? Like, it, it, it impacts you. I mean, I think I think anybody says anybody that says that they that has no impact on them at all, especially in tournaments, I I, I think is lying. It has to be. <laughs> it's, it's either lying or, or they're unaware of of their own inner workings. So like, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, but but like uh, but there there was a moment where uh, I think like two two and a half years ago, <clears throat> or like maybe three and a half years ago, where I really made like a big jump in stakes where I really started playing like the 10Ks online, where I, I bought into like a, a couple really big high-end live events. And uh, I could sort of notice immediately like my old patterns coming back. Like I was just in such a new field and, and, and like the, the amounts were so extreme all of a sudden. It's sort of like this, this whole swing of confidence of like, all right, I'm the best, I'm the worst. It, it came back like the like, uh, in a while, but they came back by when when I really started to enter like the super high stakes. So uh, I mean that that was definitely an interesting experience. <laughs> Would be one of these, you know, you said you fall into old habits. How, how does that translate into in terms of what you do, but also in terms of I'm very curious as well. What what would you say is like a typical? C game habit for you? Do, do you reverse back to that aggression that you mentioned er, very early on in your career? Do you go hyper hyper aggressive or? Yeah, that's that's one result of it. Like sort of uh, the big one is entitlement, I guess. I, I just feel like I'm I'm supposed to win every hand, or like uh, I just feel like I'm supposed to get a result in sort of every tournament that I <clears throat> that I play in, and that makes me, you know, sort of push the yeah <clears throat> or like. Uh, Sort of push push the buttons too much, or like um, uh, you know, I, I try to force the issue, and, and <clears throat> that all stems from entitlement. I think like um, just this idea that if you think that you are much better than you are in reality, is you also get this expectation of having to win much more than you should in reality, and at that point you're just uh, I just get I just sometimes get into this mode where I think like alright. I have to do lots of special things in order mm -hmm. to in order to perform well or in order to to, to show that I'm much better. Where whereas mm -hmm. like uh, I mean a lot of MPP poker at least, uh, uh, especially at the higher stakes these days, is just like playing a little bit defensive. You know, making sure that you're the one not making the mistakes. And like mm -hmm. uh, it, it requires like a lot of patience and, and uh, some humility in some sense. Um, like when I'm playing my C game, or, or yeah, especially C game and lower, I guess <laughs> it's like uh, that entitlement ramps up, and like sort of the, the patience and the and, and the humility goes. Right? Yeah. So when you noticed these patterns coming back when you started playing high stakes again a few years ago, uh, how would you deal with them? So you had entitlement coming in, you had a bit more aggressive tendencies. How would you overcome those? Whilst there's high stakes poker on the line and there's lots of money involved, how did you work your way through those problems? I mean, like, uh, it's it's still something I struggle with, like every now and then. So there's not there's not like one magic bullet where I would say like, all right, do this, and you will never have 
entitlement again I, I think like the awareness is a really big part of it mm -hmm. uh, I, I think just you know uh, having the capacity to be honest with yourself and to really sit down and like all right why did I make this decision why did I do the thing that I do, did and really you know uh, don't don't take the easy answer or something you know mm -hmm. don't don't tell yourself I made a mistake you know really find out why you made the mistake and uh, you know to really it's it's a <clears throat> it's a quite a time-consuming process as well and it, mm. it just takes a lot of awareness of your own mental patterns. Yeah. And um, I mean, I also think it's, it's, it's great to get help in, in that sense, to have some sort of accountability. It's like a, uh, if, you, if you explain to somebody, yeah, I made a mistake there, and somebody asks you why, and then you explain why, and then he's like, all right, but this, is that all? You know, like, is, is that really the reason? Or is there like some sort of underlying pattern here? Or like, is this something that comes up more and more often or when does it come up or why does it come up? You know, does it come up when you're tired? Does it come up when you're playing higher stakes? And why does it come up? Why does it only come up when you're playing higher stakes? Like these, yeah. You sort of have this uh, person question your beliefs. Yeah. Uh, feel, feels important. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very underlooked uh, part of poker and progression when you have to look internally gain self-awareness into your belief systems, your biases. A lot of times we're just blind excited to those things and we don't want to look. It sounds like for yourself, like a common theme coming through this interview is that you've always asked other people for their opinions. You've always been curious to uh, know more answers, which first took you into your own study habits. And it sounds like throughout your career, you've surrounded yourself with good people, good mentors and good advice to, to begin. So uh, is there any mentors in particular, any coaches or players We've had a big impact on the way you think about poker or being particularly helpful to you throughout your poker career yeah so so the the guy that i mentioned he was a, he's called jay kinkett he was like a big high stakes plo player from australia he used to be uh, he was my backer for a couple of years and like he he was this really really smart guy and like he was he was sort of transitioning out from poker uh he was doing like a master's in psychology or something so he also had like a a lot of good insight into the to the to, to the workings of the mind, and he would he would just you know uh, he would really hold yeah, hold me accountable. You know I, I would do something incredibly stupid, and normally I would just brush it off as like oh, yeah, I was just unlucky. Or like and he he would just really nail me down, like uh, be be strict in me with some sense, like just why the f did you do that? Like like what what happens in your brain that you that you come to this decision and like. Uh, and, and he also did this to other people and, and sort of seeing what sort of mistakes other people made that I didn't was very useful for me to know. Like, uh, so yeah, I think he, he was a big part of it. And then like, uh, uh, you know, like, like uh, I mean, Rene was like, uh, when, when I started joining like the, the strategy uh, courses or like the strategy discussions with, uh, with Flores and Rene, like that, that just opened up a whole world to me in, in the sense of the the mechanical workings of the brain as well it's like uh there is uh, um, you know there's there's not only a mental sense of awareness there's also a very real uh, biological element to, to what you're doing to like you know the excitement uh, you get during a tournament it means something and it means something for like the hormones you produce and like the way uh, your brain connects everything and the way your brain operates. And that, that was a big eye-opener for me as well. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Yeah. Would you say your self-awareness is one of your good skill sets that gives you an edge on the competition, your ability to seek for answers, but also to uh, reflect on yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I would like, like just the, the general curiosity, like, I think it's like a combination of curiosity, like the, the fact that I've always enjoyed playing poker a lot was, it was like a very valuable thing. Um, and that in, in combination with being very reflective, being, being able to, to reflect on myself. And also like uh, that, that sort of like the last few years is something I've, I've really thought about a lot is like, you know, you used to have few players, you, you used to have players that, 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 that would not play solvers. Like back then when it was still discussion versus solvers versus field players. And uh, like um, um, there, there's like a lot of information entering the subconsciousness, which can actually be very valuable, even even from like, in like a poker game. And like, um, and, uh, like that comes with like sort of big awareness. And you know, the when, when a hand happens and you sort of have these spidey senses you, you sort of know something's going on like uh like i really started testing like which one of these is a bias mm -hmm. which one of these is just something that i want to happen but and which one of these is actually you know an instinct that gives valuable information just it can, it can be the smallest things you know like uh, maybe there's something about the timing about something about the sizing something about the 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 flow of, of like the game flow like why did he choose this exact moment to do this like there's there's something that's very hard to quantify, mm -hmm. but at the same time it gives a lot of information. Um, actually, that voice is pretty. If you have a good voice, like <laughs> if you have mm -hmm. a good intuition for these mm -hmm. kind of things, it makes sense to start listening to that a bit. But at the same time, it's, you have to be very careful with it because like the the boundary between that sort of information and just creating like a huge bias for yourself is very thin. <laughs> Yeah, so I think yeah. it, it, you you almost say that nowadays, maybe maybe you went through phases in your poker career where you would just shut the voice down or listen too much to the voice, and it sounds like you found kind of the sweet spot and keeping the door a little bit open, listening to what he has to say, and kind of filtering out the noise between what is actual valuable information. Right? It's probably also something that you feel like it's a gut feeling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like the biggest difference between like when I play at, at my top level or when I sort of drop down from there is like if, if I'm really sharp and if I'm really into it I always go from observation to conclusion so like there's always a few things I see I get a few bits of information I try to collect that into a coherent strategy and then I act on it if I'm playing worse like you sort of get like all right I want to call the river and then you go like all right I have good blockers you can you can have many bluffs you know, you, you, you sort of start with the conclusion and then you start figuring, dreaming up reasons for why you should take mm -hmm. a specific action. And like, uh, and, and yeah, so it, it's, it works the same with that sort of intuitive voice. It's like, I've, I've seen probably at this point millions of online poker hands. You know, like there's something about the timing, for example, that people can bet the rhythm. That, like, that's very hard for me to quantify. Like I could, I could try to analyze like, hundred thousand river bets and see what time the timing they used but i haven't done any of that <laughs> would be interesting actually but like uh, um uh, but there's something about like you've made so many observations that sort of the subconscious level of like all right this feels strong it's it's sort of it's it's an important piece of information it's not like you could should completely act on it 
but it, it gives you like some sort of it's based on something and it's based on like a, a very large amount of observations that uh that can be quite interesting actually <laughs> that's really interesting yeah you said like when you're at your best you go quite quickly from observation to a conclusion or decision but when you're not at your best you, you often do it the other way around when you come with a conclusion that like you want to call or being a spot and then you'll try to find the reasoning after so yeah it feels like for yourself you would define yourself as an intuitive player is that right um not really like it's it's not my um like i, I would consider myself i, I mean I, I i'd be hard to, to box in i guess but like yeah. i consider it like a valuable piece of information yeah. and, and the stronger the intuitive feeling is the, the 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 more i'm willing to deviate from like my baseline strategy but but yeah. I do I do develop like very clear specific strategies for all my situations and and you know it all depends on how close of a decision it is and how like how 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 highly I rate the intuitive feeling yeah and like for example like in live poker as well like your intuitive feelings can just be, be a lot stronger because mm -hmm. because you you get so much more information you get so much more input mm -hmm. so like uh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an intuitive player because I always try, like, even if I have a strong intuition about something, I always try to finish, like, the logical process behind it. Uh, yeah. But I, I do value the information. That it, yeah. yeah, you don't close yourself up to what your intuition tries to tell you, right? It's not like, oh, there's a feeling, let's just block it. No, like, again, again, the word curiosity comes back, right? You're curious to what your gut feeling tries to tell you. Yeah, but but I'm also very uh, I, I test these a lot, like like when I'm playing and and like uh, for example like I see a certain bet size on the flop and I like intuitively I feel something I feel like all right this feels weaker than average or stronger than average, I then try to go back write that down and you know see see if that calibration of my intuitive feeling is actually correct or if it's just a bias of something that I want to see, you know like uh, so so it's 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 not like I just leave the intuition there to, to just do its thing. It's, it's something I really try to work with and I really try to calibrate. Yeah, so intuition seems like a good power, but it's like, it can also sometimes be playing with fire. You really have to start to become good at trusting it. And it also sounds like the work you did with, uh, with, with uh, the guy from Australia that you mentioned, right? To really go deep into basically the mental mistakes, like where did I go flawed in my, uh, in my logic? Where was it a bias? You start to identify more like what's real information and what's sort of the bias. And you start to differentiate feelings. Okay, I want to just do that now out of entitlement, for example, something that you mentioned, or out of a real piece of information. Because like you said, I played a 1 million poker hands, right? It's a process that you start to recognize, you, you, you start to call bullshit on your feelings, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I actually think these things are really interesting to test. To just play like a session and like uh, uh, to write down like all right, I I have a feeling that whenever people, uh, I don't know, like like say 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 one of your intuitive feelings is like uh, all right the guy bets big on the river, he, he has it more often than not. It's like you can just go back to your data and and check if that's actually true, and like uh, and to sort of test these 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 programs that you learn yourself to test if 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 if, if they are true. And especially, like, I find it especially a nice opportunity when you have a hand that actually, like, um, 
that doesn't lose any EV when you're wrong. So for example, like you get poor back in a certain scenario and you intuitively say like, all right, this is the type of guy that never bluffs. Like this is just the guy that never bluffs in this scenario. Like that's that's an intuition. That's like a, a feeling that can come up. Like he's really, really strong. Yeah? Like some guys will pull that bluff, but this guy is just not one of them. Is you, you like you test that sort of moment. Yeah, like instead of just automatically going all in with your ASS, you, you go and ask yourself, all right, uh, is this a guy who I expect to just never fall, to just have a bluff here like once in a blue moon, like once in 80 times or once in 70 times. And then if you five by jam and the guy folds, you go like, all right, maybe that sort of intuitive feeling was not completely correct. Like uh, you, you can sort of, uh, and, and, and you're making a lot of money anyway, because you're five by jamming ASS into a tight player. Yeah, but there's also like an opportunity for learning, and, and yeah. that's that's like an amazing place to be. <laughs> it, it, it's it sounds like you're in the process of making the unconscious, right, unconscious piece of information, which you labeled also as your intuition. You take that intuition and try to make it conscious. Like, interesting. I feel like this spot is strong. What is it about the texture? Uh, maybe the stage in the tournament. Maybe the stack sizes, and then you. I think it's very valuable. Then if you can make that information conscious, then next time when you play your B or C game, what you said that sometimes that intuition may be less sharp. And if you made your intuition conscious, you can implement it in your B and C game as well. So basically you're progressing as a player. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it's, it's also it's also just a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> like It is a lot of fun, right? Because sometimes you also just call bullshit. Like, oh, apparently I was wrong. Yeah, it's like like an extra element to your game is like a piece of self-exploration like how do i work how does my brain work and like um yeah i, I just think it's like an enjoyable element to add sometimes <laughs> this thing is also the difference between you we talked about you know and it's been talked many times about how to use solvers but i think the better players okay there's going to be some i was now going to say like you and me but it's maybe a little bit narcissistic but you know when we look probably at the solver you immediately, it does something and you feel a feeling like, nah, this is not right. And then you kind of go through the tree and you say, yeah, okay, I understand what you're doing because this is going to happen, but this doesn't happen in practice. Then obviously you can go out test if that's literally the case. But I think a lot of strong players, they have that intuit, intuition when they look at a solver and it makes it easier for them to kind of dodge the, the classic solver errors, basically. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean... Like there's there's also this this group of guys who are just really really proficient at following the solvers and just they they just they just have really really solid fundamentals and like uh, they they're very unlikely to, to to make a mistake and they they sort of follow the play of the solver like very closely and and these are just very good players like like uh, I I wouldn't say that there's one group that's actually better than the other uh, uh, there's always a mix of course but the one thing I would say about tournaments is that like, <clears throat> everything is like so dynamic everything is so like there's so many situations you can get into there's so many variables like like the the stage of the tournaments the payouts like the exact stack size configuration because like you know like uh, you can and all the different stack sizes you can learn all the trees from 100 bb from a 50 bb from a 40 bb but then you have a situation where the button opens and the small blind has 20 bigs and the big blind has 40 bigs. You know, you have all these differences and they all matter. They all matter like a huge amount. Because in a, like a solver is very sensitive to, to sort of the preflop ranges that you give it. 
So like once you start tweaking a little bit there, like the output becomes completely different. So I feel like in tournaments, you need to have some sort of this improvisation. Like you can't, you can't just learn all the baseline strategies and try to play them perfectly because it's, it's just too, too, too big of a com computational cloud. Like there's, there's just too much going on to do that. Leading up to the podcast, I was listening back to a couple of other podcasts for inspiration and some guidelines. And I listened to a podcast, I don't anymore know which one it was, but it was with Kevin Rabichu, uh, Kevin, that heads up guy from Run It Once, Kevin Rabichuak. Ciao. Kevin Rabichu. Rabichu. Sorry for butchering your name. Uh, but he was like, he was, he's a cash game heads up player. And then he transitioned to tournaments. And he was talking about the struggles that he had in terms of the way he used to learn the game. Heads up cash is, you know, you can go really deep into small nuances in spots because there aren't as many spots. Whereas in tournaments, as you said, there's just so much variables that keep on changing that if he would take that study approach and use it in tournaments, it would take him his whole life to figure out how tournaments work, right? So you need a bit more of a holistic approach and kind of get a feel for how various situations play, right? And that's kind of also, I think, what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, uh, I mean, you you also see this, I think, quite often with like the cash games transitioning to the MPTs is that that's like a really an area they struggle with. It's like, like uh, you know, like situations that are quite easy to, to solve uh, all of a sudden become very difficult for them because they just have no reference or no no guidelines for them and and they don't have like this natural improvisation they don't have like this natural uh, way of figuring out and um, so yeah i mean I, I i still think the the systematic solver study is very very important and it's very very useful but to be in the illusion of just being able to execute all of those strategies uh, whenever you need them to be like, all right, I'll just open up a file like hijack versus cutoff, 30 dB, uh, uh, like near the bubble. I, I just know what to do. I, I, I mean, I just don't think it's realistic. But maybe, maybe, I mean, you always have to assume that, <laughs> that, 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 that you're competing with very smart guys. Like maybe there's, there's like a couple of guys who have like, I don't know, this really sick chess player's memory that they can just navigate this. And that they can uh, contain all this information within their heads. I just found out for me that like it was not a, it was not a very realistic thing to do. Yeah, I mean the way we approach poker. I mean obviously we have discussed poker uh, many of hours, and you know we're both big fan uh, to to yeah to find the mechanics right to to stay within the line of the name of the podcast. Try to find the mechanics and the differences how certain spots work, and kind of from there. Use your intuition. Now, this is a spot where usually this applies and then kind of see what the small variables are and try to figure it out. And I guess it's also the more the more variables are, the more you should try to let go of making the perfect decision. I think that's probably something that they then struggle with as well. Just dealing with the fact that you cannot make perfect decisions because of so many variables. I would say that it's a spot that I would struggle with as a cash game player going to MTTs. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I also think like uh, um, whenever people play some sort of strategy that's very close to the solver, they expect to make a lot of money. And then when people start making mistakes, uh, they expect to be making a lot more, even a lot more money. And like um, uh, that's not necessarily true 
especially in tournaments where like uh, uh, you know like you could be doing something very solver approved in an icm scenario for example uh, and still lose a ton of money just because of the response of your of your opponent so you really need to be aware of like what what sort of factors influence your decisions there so given the way the game plays it's just being quote quote gto punishes you a little bit more than in cash game because of for example icm considerations yeah i mean i mean a, a, a good example of that i always find is like if you're playing a satellite and uh, i don't know there's five people left and four people get a ticket like satellite is sort of the most extreme icm scenario you can get into um it's like the, if you're a second in chips and the big blind is a chip leader and he's like a huge whale and he's going to make super loose calls and he's uh, you know, he's, he's just not going to respect the fact that he doesn't need to win the tournament, but he can only win a ticket. That's actually bad for your EV if you are out of position against this player. So he's going to make a lot of mistakes against you, yet it hurts your, your expected win rate in, in this tournament. And that's that's in a lot of tournament scenarios where, like, uh, you know, like the people who are not in the hand, they can they have an opportunity to make money. So like whenever there's two people entering the hand and one one person makes a mistake, which ends up to to both players busting more often, for example, that like that's not good for the play. Like he's making a mistake against somebody, but the player he's making the mistake against is not the player making the money, but it's actually the other people at the table. So like uh, <laughs> you know if you then go to this like solver mindset, like all right, whatever I'm doing in the solver is good. Yeah, you're just you're just not seeing the whole puzzle. Like. Uh, that's, I think, very interesting. I remember once you told me about a hand, I think it was in a, in, 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 a, in a seminar that we gave, where you actually folded the hand that's normally being played. So you basically, you folded the hand to get out of the way because you figured the players behind you would make bigger mistakes if you would go out of the way than if you would play the hand, basically. I thought that was, for me, that was mind-blowing. Like, what do you mean? We have a great hand. I just look at my hand. Can I play my hand? I, but you literally, you threw your cards away. The guy made a mistake, right? Rejamming, I think. A way to lose of a hand, and you make money by doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it was in one of the seminars we did, but like uh, basically inducing uh, situations in which people bust very frequently, uh, especially if you have people that uh, that are likely to bust too often, or like they that are likely to take too big of a risk, is is a great strategy to make money in tournaments. It's like a, you know, just go out of the way. Like the the the, the way in in cash games. Uh, it always works is like uh, you know you play a hand it's minus EV you don't play a hand and if it's plus EV you play a hand yeah. uh, in tournaments you, you you sort of have to outperform the EV of a fold so like a marginal plus EV hand becomes minus EV because the threshold of what you're trying to outperform becomes higher very difficult in the same time you notice that because to, to go back to a point you were talking about right you you were starting to play more high rollers and you talked about that people when we talked a little bit about gto you said yeah, some people you know, are a bit more defensive by nature and from there they might you know they first try to defend well and from there they might start exploiting you you encountered and maybe we can talk about this like getting out of the way for other people to make a mistake you encountered these plays i assume more when you started to play these higher stakes tournaments yeah, I mean, I mean, like the, the, the thing with higher stakes tournaments is just like you have this very uh, uncomfortable combination of like people will just make less mistakes, so you get less of this confirmation of like, oh yeah, I played a really good hand or like I played this really well. 
you just get paid less in general with your good hands is that kind of thing and then whenever you make a mistake like they they have the ability to pounce and to, to really punish it um, um and that's only of the mistakes you're aware of like then there's also this part where you you also have to consider is like these people know something that i don't or it's possible that these people know something that i don't so i really have to, to watch out for that but uh but yeah that's that's the the, the biggest thing about playing higher, higher stakes is like people are just going to make mistakes less so uh so your own mistakes are going to be much more costly and, and that's why a lot of people sort of employ a little bit of a more de defensive strategy, I guess, is because uh, because not making the mistake just becomes so so much more important. Yeah, because also yeah, attacking and going out there and trying to pick up chips, you will blunder probably way more frequently than you would do at mid stakes, for example. An exploit, a, a positive, a positively uh, intent, a positive intention to make an exploit can blow up in your face a bit more often at higher stakes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's also less opportunity to compensate for mistakes. You know, like, uh, you know, say you, you open a little bit too wide, you could consider that a mistake, but at mid-stakes you could, uh, you know, value bet a little bit more correctly, you get uh, attacked less, you, uh, you sort of have a higher realization of your hand, so like the mistake just becomes smaller. And like at higher stake, it just, it just means like if, if the mistake is getting completely punished, even a very marginal mistake or a very small detail can end up losing uh, quite a bit in the long run. So like, uh, um, and also the defensive strategy is, I guess, a bit easier to play. Just, uh, uh, would, what, what would you say was, was the biggest adjustment you had to make when you played, when you started play, like, you know, you were even referring to very high buy-ins live. Uh, what were kind of adjustments that you had to make when you started playing higher? And were there also some adjustments in terms of high stakes live and online? Was there a difference? Um, no, I mean, like, the, the fields look pretty similar in those, I guess. Like, like online, it's, it's, it's like online, you get a little bit less of the, like, the, the huge high stakes whales, I guess. Like, uh, they, they just show up for, like, these really high buy-ins less often. But yeah, like uh, I mean, one one of the big mistakes was was that, or like one of the big adjustments that I was that I made was like I couldn't just assume, you know, people would make mistakes in certain spots. Like I I, I sort of had like a lot of like a big subset of tricks of things that I knew worked and you know uh, sort of situations where I could up the aggression a little bit, situations where it made sense to downplay the aggression a bit. Um, and uh, what I've straight away noticed in the higher stakes was that um, people started exploiting that and that people would put me into situations which I hadn't encountered, which I didn't really consider. You know, I, I would you know, start checking backhands on, on specific boards um, and I would all of a sudden face sizings that I, that I, that I didn't form, that I didn't have like a coherent strategy against. And, um, so yeah, that, that was that was definitely a big adjustment. Is that you sort of have to be wildly prepared for anything that happens. It's, it sounds like I get a deja vu from uh, earlier in your career, right? Where where basically also you had a set of tricks which was to be very aggressive. Now you had a set of tricks which worked versus the population. But then again, you are now suddenly playing high rollers, which I guess is a different population on its own, right? A lot of the players that form a population weren't playing these tournaments, so you kind of had to start over again. But in the same time, last time you learned a lot from it as well. What were the things that you 
then learned from you know take, taking these shots at these highest stakes right you you already mentioned you were very competitive and you're in generally curious so what is the thing that you learned the most yeah i mean i mean like um it, it sort of entered like a chain of events for me it was like uh, uh i played it i played some of the, the higher stakes tournaments and then it had such like uh, the fact that i wasn't performing as well as i thought i could uh, combined with the fact that it was having like a lot bigger mental impact on me than i than i expected it to have um yeah it really sort of started like a, a chain of events where uh, like even I, I had to quit playing poker for a while just because I hit a burnout and I was uh, it was affecting me so much so like the, the thing that I learned from it was like uh, uh, that it that I don't necessarily need to play <laughs> like uh, uh, for me it's like sort of an open question at this point where like uh, uh, you know I, I would like to complete compete but it's no longer a necessity and like uh, when I feel like I'm in a good place to compete I, I will but if, if that place if I never reach that place I'm also at peace with that like like uh, it just got to the sense where like the competition felt so fierce and the pressure felt so high that I that I wasn't really sure if that's what I wanted so actually, because you mentioned before as well, right? The competitiveness, it was like, yeah, I have to, I think you mentioned that like, like you felt like you had to, you had to prove yourself there, right? You had something to prove, you had to play high stakes, you, you know, because you're, you're a twice. That's what you do. You're a high stakes poker player. So would you say that that experience learned you to reflect a bit more in terms of, okay, why do I actually have to play high stakes poker? Do I have to play high stakes poker? Is that, is that what I want? Is it in line with my goals? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, it was it was never really like a money thing. The, the high stakes. It was it was not like, all right, I've made this much money now. I got to play higher to make even more money. Like that was never really one of the considerations. Like it really became came from a competitive element, but it also it sort of led me down to a tunnel where like I was feeling like I was playing so high that I had to perform so well that I was just loading up so much pressure on myself, and like I I just went to my old patterns where like. Uh, all right, uh, I want to get better. I'll just, you know, brute force hours, hours, hours. I'll, I'll just put in all the time. And like, I, I was just becoming, uh, you know, I was reaching a level of like unsustainability where like the, the amount of effort and time I was putting into it was like no longer sustainable health-wise. And, um, and, and I mean, that's something I'm still recovering from, but it's something that took me a really long time to recover from. And that's also opened me up to the fact that, like, you know, there's no, uh, the end game here is not to be Michael Adamo. Like, like that's, that's, that's obviously a end game. Like, that, that would be a very nice end game to be in if, if, if you manage to reach, uh, reach that point. But it's not the only end game. It's not the only, it's not the only place to be. That's, that, that, that's very interesting. So, basically, you used to think, that yeah, like okay, uh, I have to become sort of the best. I have to compete with the best. And basically, what you're saying now, you, given how what you experienced, you found a new definition of success for you. You could almost say like the popular definition of success is the players are successful who battle the highest stakes tournaments, right? And as long as you don't reflect on that question, what is success for you? You just follow the society norm. In this case, you know who plays the highest. So. That changed for you, I would say. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, um, there, there's also this sense where, uh, you know, always feeling like you have to be the best is, is not a very uh, healthy mindset to be in because it's, it's a very fragile place to be. Like the who is the best is like a very, very small and, and very heavily debated sort of group. And there's also this sense where like, I, I sort of understood that maybe it, it just wasn't for me. Like, like maybe, uh, uh, you know, like maybe the the guys that really do well that that do super high stakes these days, they might have a, a skill set which I do not possess or like which I am no longer comfortable developing. Like there's really this sense of like, uh, all right, uh, I'm gonna sit here play for huge amounts and I'm not gonna let it affect anything. I'm gonna, you know, like the the sort of the tenacity and the discipline that. Like if you watch one of those 300Ks, like all these guys, they are like taking 30 seconds, exactly 30 seconds for every decision. Like uh, they they give away nothing tells wise. Like they, they have like this complete uh, armor of, of of physical presence. Like uh, uh, maybe maybe that's just not for me. <laughs> and, and and to sort of accept that that's okay. Like. Uh, um, and, and, and to accept that I, I no longer want to invest like 90% of my spare time into, into developing myself as a poker player. This is interesting. So there's like two, two points here. There's one, maybe they possess certain skills or have certain talent that maybe I don't have. And second, let's say there are things that I can do in order to join them on that table, timing 30 seconds for every, for every decision. Then the question now is, do I actually want that? Like, do I have to put in a, such an amount of effort? Do I have to make so much sacrifice in order to get there as well? Is it actually something that would still be considered a win for me if I would do that, right? Then you might end up at the table, but you would feel miserable because of all the sacrifices you had to make. Yeah, because 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 after after that period of playing like really high stakes, and, and I, I, I literally crashed. I, I, I sort of, I, I hit a burnout. And I hit a period where I, I just couldn't play poker for months, and um, uh, where I, like, I just, I mean, I, I had a very significant burnout in that sense, where, like, I was just physically incapable of doing a lot of the things that, that were completely normal to me before. So, like, there was also the the, the very realistic question is like, is this even something I can do? You know, like a, I don't know, like a professional football player that. Uh, has weak knees or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. in his career at 25 becomes like that sort of this point where like, all right, he's had a few injuries and it doesn't make sense to continue. Um, so there's that element to it. And then there's also the element of like, uh, do I want it? Like, like, does it bring me happiness? Like what, what is sort of the end goal here? And like, I always assumed the end goal would be to just, uh, just, just be the best. But yeah. you, have to, you have to be very realistic with yourself. It's, it's unlikely that you're the best. Yeah, especially if you're competitive, right? That's just, if you don't stop to think about what you want, that's kind of what you go for. I mean, this, this is the game you put all your hours in, so why not try to become the best? Yeah, and, and it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a trap I feel like a lot of poker players fall into. It's like everybody is just so focused on becoming the best that nobody really accepts the fact that it's very unlikely that they'll be even close to the best, and mm -hmm. like, uh, and and that sort of, 
the end game for them and for most players was vastly different than the guys who were trying to make like the actual highest stakes. So uh, yeah, that, that was that was a very interesting experience for me. What were it, it, it was almost like you you said that you also got physical responses. So it was like your body at some point he gave, basically you had some time to make up your mind, but you didn't make up your mind, and then at some point your body just said, "Hey, listen, man." If you don't make up your mind, then I'll make it very clear for you. We're not going to do this. Yeah, so I, I made up my mind in the sense that, that it was something that I wanted to, to try, that I wanted to try to achieve. And then the body just said no. It just said a big no. Like, uh, just pulled the brakes and, and pulled the brakes really hard. Like, uh, I, I remember that period where, like, uh, uh, you know, if, if I look back on it now, there was like a couple of red flags and a couple of warning signs. But then, yeah, I was very curious. Like, what are the signs? That, that, that I mean, that... I mean, the, the, the warning signs are, 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 are quite different for everybody, I guess. But, uh, you know, if you have this feeling that you just need one big score to get to the success that you require, like that's that's sort of a big warning sign. And like, all right, you're, you're sort of uh, hopefully projecting like almost with like a gambler's attitude. Like, all right, if I just make this one bank, then like all of it will be okay. Um, I mean, if, if you're just physically neglecting yourself. Which often happens, right? A lot of time into poker, you feel like, oh, I need to study more, play more. Yeah, if, if you notice the quality of your sleep going down, that's like a huge, huge warning sign. If, if like, if you are taking a shower or walking in the park and like, it's just hand histories, like flashing through your mind, like constantly, uh, like that, 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 then there's a point where you just you're not thinking about the poker strategically, but it's just uh, it occupies so much of your brain that it just can't do anything else but <laughs> sort of uh, repeat those images. You you were mentioning like you then want like a big score. What what then is it about that big score? What is that big score going to give you? Yeah, usually usually people think of like all right, then I'll have the bankroll to be completely comfortable and to be completely happy in those games. But it's it's all a pipe dream, of course, because there's always a higher game to play and there's always a bigger a bigger tournament to play. So like there's always more action to get. So like um, um, this mentality of having a big score, like often people relate sort of their struggles to their current situation. So like, all right, uh, um, I struggle with a couple of things, but money would fix these struggles quite often, like, uh, you know, like uh, I stress about money a lot, or I, uh, you know, I, I haven't been able to invest enough in, in Bitcoin as much as I wanted to. And if I could have just done that, if I just had a big score, then it would have been much more now and I would have been completely financial secure and like there would have been, wouldn't be any problem. Like uh, people sort of uh, deflect the, the personal responsibility that they have to like external factors and like, uh, you know, a big score, is is an external factor that helps you in a lot of ways very often but if you're going to be dependent of that that's just you know then then you're just not in in a good zone to perform and, and then you just get very close to what actually looks like uh, you know what a psychologist or a psychiatrist would define as a gambling addiction. for yourself when you uh, hit this burnout point what was the first things you started to do to uh, start to recharge or rebuild yourself what was the avenues you you went down well, I, I mean, like, uh, it, it was a very interesting period for me, but like, to be honest, the, the, the first few, 
like I hit the burnout and the burnout looked like just constant panic attacks, just like having very poor sleep, just, you know, being completely out of any sort of physical comfort. And, uh, and, and to be honest, like if, if I look back on that period, I, I think for the first few days, I, I, I went a bit mad, honestly. Like it's, it's a very strange thing to realize about you, but I, I, I genuinely think I went a bit mad. I, I was just uh, in my house in like constant panic mode, unable to sleep, but being super tired at the same time, you know, going from panic to panic. And like, uh, um, uh, I, I didn't have any tools to, to, to deal with this. I had never had a panic attack before. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced a panic attack, but for the people who have, I imagine the first time is a very scary one because uh, you, you basically don't know what's going on and you, you just have this very primordial feeling that something's very, very wrong, um, but there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. You just, it's, it's bigger than you, it's stronger than you. There's no controlling it. There's no suppressing it. There's no going through it. It's just, it's just there the whole time. And like, um, and then slowly as I started learning to, you know, a few tricks to, to sort of deal with like the initial onset of, 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 of the burnout, uh, you know, then came a bit of space of like, okay, how, how do I uh, fix this? Or how do I fix this, um, this program within myself that led me to this place? And like, uh, and a big thing for me was connecting back to my physicality. It's like, I, I always used to think of like, sort of the body as being a vehicle for my brain. Like I, I would be my brain, I would be my thoughts, I would be the, the, like all my skills were related to thinking, all my skills were related to the brain. You know, like um, I, I, I was just in quite a bad shape physically. Um, and um, so yeah, to, to really regain a connection with like, you know, the, the thing that I would do was like, uh, I would calculate if I was tired, you know, I would go like, all right, I slept seven hours last night. Uh, you know, I didn't drink, uh, uh, so I should be fine to work a full day now. That's that's how I would calculate it. Instead of sitting down and thinking like, all right, how, how do I feel? Like, like, am I tired? Am I am I feeling energized? Like, mm. like I just completely disconnected from mm. like the physical sensation of the body and the physical cues the body was giving me. And that's that's all. A panic attack is really just like your body screaming for attention for screaming like all right you're not listening to the signals i'm giving you like uh, please please take take some care so yeah i mean uh, i started to incorporate like uh, some fitness some uh, a lot of yoga like yoga sort of became my uh, my safe place my uh, my way of uh, of returning to the body uh, of returning to like some sort of uh, calmness some sort of uh, Calm mindfulness, calm mindfulness, where I wasn't in like this complete state of panic and, and anxiety the whole time. Uh, like, um, so yeah, I mean, I basically went, applied like all the skills I'd learned as a poker player, and I started just analyzing myself as as a human. Like, okay, <laughs> what am I doing? Like, how do I work? What areas are fit for for improvement? Like, uh, uh, how do other successful people do it? Um, uh, I, I started hiring people to, to explain things to me. Like, uh, you know, I started getting like a lot of private. Uh, uh, I started talking to my psychologist. I started talking with uh, 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 a life coach. I started talking 
I hired a, a private trainer, just all these people to just like, all right, I don't have any of this knowledge. And it seems, mm -hmm. me, it seems quite apparent to me that I need this. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, that's always been lately my mode is like, if, if I want to know something, I just pay something to pay somebody to, to explain it to me. And like, and, and that, that I found was really, really helpful. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that and going so deep on and vulnerable on the anxiety and the panic attacks that you faced. Myself, I haven't experienced anything that's that wild. I'm sure some of the audience have had panic attacks or anxiety that they've struggled with. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting that it, it came from a disconnect between the mind and the body and almost like the, the body screaming out for some attention that you were neglecting, most likely because all your time was on the mind playing poker. And yeah, I like that you said that basically it was like, Getting that reconnection and it sounds like you used that self-awareness skill set that came up earlier to look for answers rather than uh, applying to the poker concept of is this a bias is this my intuition how to think through a hand you applied the same concepts to your body and to yourself and to your life so i think that's really interesting how these skills we learn as poker players can often cross over and again you also use the skill of seeking advice if I'm listening to you throughout this conversation, you've always looked for answers. You've always looked for experts who can fast track your journey. So uh, again, when you had panic attacks, you didn't know what was happening. And your first inkling was self-awareness, check in with the body, and then find experts who know things I don't know. So uh, how is that going at the moment? It sounds like it's going to be a long journey. Do you feel like you're, you've made a lot of progress in that? And are you out the other side of these panic attacks and the burnout? And yes, where are you at right now with that? Yeah, I mean, like I, I would still say I'm, I'm somewhat in the recovery phase. Like the, the I mean, the, the period that I talk about right now is like the last one and a half year. I've, I've sort of like a year and a half ago was sort of the moment where the burnout happened, and then like uh, I spent a few months just being unable to do any sort of poker-related thing, just uh, because because like any, any sort of work I would do would just immediately activate like all the circuits and. Uh, would just send me back down into a spiral. Um, so I had to be really, really careful with that because like the, the, the burnout I had, uh, I mean, that's also what they've told me professionally, was it was quite severe. And I think one of the reasons, uh, and that's also like one of the reasons why I wanted to share it, is like, uh, I feel like a lot of poker players are sort of close to this moment. Mm -hmm. And um, especially right now with like the pandemic and uh like all that's happened the past two years uh, like um the stakes becoming so high and the competition becoming so fierce it's like um uh you know if you watch these super high rollers and and somebody busts and gets like a really bad beat and they just sit there and they just take it and they, they just you know they don't flinch they don't like i always used to think of that as like a really uh, impressive thing and that's that's something that i tried to emulate it's like whenever i was playing live poker i would just you know i would get a beat like somebody would make like a really bad play against me you win a huge pot uh, you make a huge suck out and i would just sit there and take it like a champ but actually that's that's a very unnatural thing to do and that's like a you're pushing down you're suppressing all the emotions because like it, it means something to you like like uh, you know it sucks getting a bad beat like if if you're playing a live tournament, you've made three days of investment in that tournament, you're on the end of day three, and somebody just punts to you and wins, that's that it feels really unfair. And you can you can be quite angry about that. But like, um, you know, the person that jumps up and starts shouting and cursing at people, you know, you get like a Phil Helmet style where like, I'll burn this, I'll burn this place down and whatnot. It's like, 
that's actually, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that's a great reaction, but it's a very natural one. And it's sort of a natural way for your body to release yeah. uh, that sort of stress and, and anger that it's feeling. Uh, and what I was doing, I was just, I was just bottling it down without, without finding like an appropriate uh, place for, for, mm-hmm. for, for expression for it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like um, that, that's, that's something that I would really like to tell people is like, if, if you have this feeling that you're suppressing these kind of things all the time, uh, just because it's not socially acceptable or something, like find, find an outlet for it. Cause, cause it's really important that it doesn't build up. Um, yeah. And where I am now is like, I feel like I have a good handle on it. I feel like I have a good grip on, um, uh, on sort of what I need to feel good and what I need mm-hmm. to recover well. Mm-hmm. I do still feel quite vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like I do still feel like, uh, you know, if I played the session for two days and I'm a bit more tired, you know, I, I can sort of feel the tension building up and I feel like the, uh, I guess the fear of going back into a burnout scenario where your body's just not capable of functioning as you want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I, I'm past it uh, by any means, but I, I do find that I have like a better grip on it now. And, yeah. uh, and and like now I'm really in sort of the area of exploration where I'm sort of, you know, uh, testing the waters again, testing my own limits again. Like uh, in two weeks, I'll be playing my first live tournament in, in yeah. two years. That's, that's like a really like it's a it's a 2K in Amsterdam. And I can honestly say I've never been more nervous about a tournament than I've ever been. Like, uh, uh, and I can get quite nervous about tournaments. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can get excited and I can get like, all right, this is going to happen. But like this tournament is like a really special one for me because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going back uh, to the place that I was, but I'm going back as a much different person. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know really how that person is going to react. And like, I've also told myself, like, if, 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 because, because like poker, can quite easily trigger these kind of panics because you, you know, you're playing a hand and you get like this shot of adrenaline and like uh, somebody's looking at you intensely and you get like all confrontational and like, uh, or you feel like you make a mistake and and like all of these can can trigger quite strong biological systems within yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really big challenge for me. Um, I'm really curious to see how it goes. And like uh, I've, I've made extra sure to do my whole preparation for it, but like. You know, I'm gonna take extra rest. I'm gonna be very mindful of whatever comes up, and uh, and I've also accepted that um, if it doesn't feel right, that I'll just quit halfway the tournament. Like that's 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 something that's like a, a realistic option for me right now. But it's something that I'm willing to try. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it sounds like for you, it's been a long journey back to uh, hopefully back to good form and good health. And yeah, it feels like you went through. Uh, a lot of inquiries with yourself and i think it was really interesting the way you talked about emotions and as poker players we often get told to suppress them and we look at the high stakes guys who can take the bad beats to the high rollers you go wow i want to be him but behind the scenes often those guys perhaps are creating characteristics in terms of suppressing emotions which aren't healthy or at some point might not be healthy for them and for yourself it sounds like having a regular output for your emotions doing something physical by the sounds of it is very very healthy for you so for other poker players because i know a lot of players listening to this will be a little bit detached from their bodies they will be almost like training themselves to show less emotions to feel less emotions even is there any kind of 
advice you would give to those based on your experiences to uh, just check in with your body more and also give yourself an outlet for your emotions because often in the poker setting, it's this, it's not encouraged, it's actually almost like frowned upon for showing your emotions. So uh, is there any outlets you could say for other poker players that you've found useful for yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, like the, the, the first I would mention is like outlets that are sort of not acceptable for you. Like that's an outlet that I would use myself very often, like sort of a, like even like a mild substance abuse. Like I would go on and off about smoking cigarettes for years. Like I had a really hard time quitting and I had a really hard time quitting because I didn't understand why I was smoking cigarettes. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, if you smoke a cigarette, there's nicotine in there. There's like a, a way of breathing consciously. Like even if you're breathing smoke, it's like, uh, you, it's, it's almost like a breathing exercise. And like smoking is a way to calm the system down and to, to calm mm -hmm. yourself down. But yeah, it's obviously not a very, uh, it's a great solution in the short term, but it's a terrible solution in the long term. So like, if you ever notice yourself that you sort of need these things to unwind, to compensate for the fact that uh, you're suppressing these emotions, so like it can be like uh, weed, alcohol, or uh, gaming, or like, even if you feel like every time you feel uncomfortable, you need to look at your phone or something. Like if, if you have that sort of patterns within you, I would say that some that, that is something that's very interesting to explore and to try and substitute those patterns for something healthy, for something fun, like, uh, you know, like if, if after every uh, tournament you uh, you go kickboxing, like that's a that's a great that's a great thing to do, I think, like, uh, or uh, if that's not your like, you also have to find out a bit like what what sort of emotions you're suppressing, because some people have more anger, some people have more sadness, some people have more uh, you know, some people have so much elation and excitement when they're playing that that's the one that they're suppressing. So you kind of have to figure out how you work yourself first and then find like an appropriate outlet. So, so like for me, that's yoga because like, uh, uh, like the thing that I usually suppress the most is, is sort of disappointment and sadness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so like yoga is like a really nice way to, uh, not completely drain yourself, but at the same time, you know, up your uh, up your home hormone level a bit, up your do your your natural baseline dopamine level a bit, um, to to just feel comfortable within the body. It's a great way to to relieve stress. Like stress builds up in the body, like if you don't release it. So like, uh, uh, yeah, yoga was a great one for me. But uh, honestly, I think there's a million things to do. But the most important thing is to realize, is to try and do the research first. Is like, okay, what am I suppressing, and what what is it that I'm looking for? Yeah, it's very interesting. You also mentioned that I thought it was interesting when you mentioned that I was I slept seven hours, so I should I should feel great, right? You let your brain decide if you were feeling great, and that's indeed like one of these skills, right, that you sort of develop in poker, like. I don't listen to my emotions. I don't listen to my body. Then at some point, you 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 indeed become so disconnected. And also in terms of suppressing emotions, I mean, I have a Latin American wife who is very emotional. And then I think a lot of poker players can relate to this, right? That then a lot of the skill sets that you build by becoming a good poker player don't necessarily <laughs> transfer to having a, a emotional, loving relationship, for example, right? Uh, and it sounds like, again, the disconnection with your body, not reading the signs because you're just blocking it, is definitely one of these sort of negative effects or, you know, uh, uh, that can come with becoming a successful poker player. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's very similar to the thing we talked about earlier. It's like you have this rational side to yourself and this intuitive side. And this intuitive side is, is worth discovering because it, it gives you information. But it's not like you should always listen to your intuition. It's like if I would always listen to my intuition, I would be eating chocolate all day. I would be like 180 kilos. I would smoke, uh, you know, like like if I would just always did what my what I intuitively wanted to do, that's not a very great way to live. But at the same time, there are nuggets of information there. There is there is important stuff there, and the trick is to 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 create like this sort of symbiosis with yourself, in which uh, you know what your biases are, you know what your your standard patterns are, but you also know what happens when 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 something something valuable is coming through, when some some valuable nugget of information enters enters the system. So yeah. I mean, I can relate to a lot of things, uh, but you went you went to a hell of a journey, I would say. Uh, and lo looking back at basically, you know, we talked about multiple obstacles throughout your career. Um, what would you say is the most important thing that your career so far has taught you? Uh, my most important thing, really. I mean, it's it's that sense of self-discovery and wonder. Is that that would be a very very important factor, I guess. Um, also, there there's always been this sense in poker where uh, the, the the that I sort of learned to to trust myself and to trust my own ability. And like um, uh, especially as a poker player, there's like a lot of noise from your surroundings, from your friends. They're like, oh yeah, should you do this? Or like, uh, oh, did you lose so much? Or, you know, the, 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 there's always this this uh, this sense of doubt surrounding you, and like I've I've been pretty successful over the, over the last few years, but I imagine like especially people who, because because you know like to the outside world it's really easy to show like oh yeah I won a big life tournament that was a huge score, and then everybody will be like oh that's that's great, but especially for guys who are like playing cash games or like where it's not so well publicized, uh, I think you can get like into an an area where your environment is really like constantly doubting you, constantly thinking like, hey, is this even right for him? Or, or, or you know, um, what about the future and that, that kind of thing? And like, as soon as I learned to get rid of that noise and just accept like, all right, I'm a poker player. This is who I am. This is what I believe in. Uh, this is what I enjoy doing. Uh, it sort of made it much easier uh, to live basically because like you're, you're not so reactive to, to whatever happens around you but also like it sounds like there's less pressure right you have nothing left to prove yeah and 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 and, and I, I think this is something like a lot of people encounter in life especially not poker players actually is like you get sort of forced onto this path and everybody wants you to stay on that path uh, and and sometimes the path makes a lot of sense and uh you should never forego good advice but there's also this this sometimes the path that you see is is very different and you should explore that that sort of option and you should have yeah you know, sounds like i'm going for like a sort of a cliche follow your heart thing but um i don't think everybody should follow their heart i think it's terrible advice but i think you should at least research it i think you should at least discover like sort of what your uh, ideas that, that that you would really like to, to accomplish and that's something that poker taught me is like you can be independent in that sense you can be make your own decisions uh, it's, it's just a sense of letting go of that that noise that surrounds you 
how co, co, I'm now I'm curious, like if you now show up to play a poker session, right? You have been starting to play poker again. How is that different compared to like one and a half, two years ago in terms of your experience, like a, day, a, a grind session of yours? How is that different? I mean, in terms of experience, like uh, uh, I've become a lot more aware about like removing distractions just, just because I, I was confronted with the own limits of my physicality. So like uh, I, I know, like when I now play a session, you know, I, I have to make sure that all other distractions are off. I was never that strict with it in the past. Like I have a really strict preparation before a tournament or before a session. Like I have a, I have a routine which I have to go through. Um, I take much more conscious use of my breaks because in tournaments you have like a break every uh, every hour for five minutes. Mm -hmm. So like uh, I. I I always make to go make sure to go out on my balcony or to do like some sort of yoga pose, like something to recharge the system. So that's that's much different. And whilst playing, like what's what's very different to me is that I I just feel more at peace. You know, I I feel less less of a you know gorilla. <laughs> I'm, I'm more 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 of a bird, I guess. <laughs> like a, you know, I I just flow through the session and I enjoy what it brings to me. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, less less angry, less uh, less less trying to battle, and more more enjoying myself. Because it sounds like also yeah, you're perfectly fine with where you are now, right? It's like you're you're in peace compared to before that. It's like you were playing, but you didn't want to be there. You wanted to be the best. So there's a lot of, you know, a little bit of competitiveness. I think is good for a poker player, but if it if it blows out of proportion, it brings a lot of negativity to go with it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 like the the important thing is always like people always say like competitiveness is important for poker players, but uh, it's competitive within your skill set. If you become competitive at a higher skill set than you are capable of, then then you're just you know you're just not in a place that you should be. And like the, like usually the competitiveness is very useful for making sure that you move up in the stakes. It's like you, you sometimes see people playing with really low stakes and they just have very little competitiveness, but they actually have the skill set. But you also see like people who just have more competitiveness than they have skill set. And they will just bounce back from high stakes to mid stakes, high stakes to mid stakes, high stakes to mid stakes, just because that they, they're just trying to, to, to perform at the level that they can. And, uh, and that's something to be super important to be uh, super important to be aware of. It's very stressful, I can imagine. Basically, I think that process between every time having to jump between stakes, at some point you will start jumping less because you cannot no longer handle this, the stress that comes with it. You have to find a way, right? At some point you will naturally, your body will level will level you out into where you really belong. Yeah, or, or uh, I mean, there's also a couple other results in the simulation, which you see very often, is that people jump in stakes and then they jump, jump, jump because their competitiveness is still there, but their skill set doesn't, doesn't grow with them. And then they just mm -hmm. quit poker. They just go broke. Or they just, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like a, uh, yeah. You have one, to it's one thing if you can actually draw back and, and sort of realize, all right, uh, I should move back. Or like, uh, th there's also another path in which people just lose their mind. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, basically just again, right? These kind of things, and it's quite clear. And this is, I think, is going to be a theme of successful poker players you learned from all these things that happened to you, right? Like this person you're describing now, he wasn't self-aware yet to realize that indeed his competitiveness and his skill weren't in line. And that was causing the problem. 
And if he, he had to realize that sooner in order to be smarter with the games he decided to play. But if you don't develop that skill, you will end up getting, yeah, you end up broke at some point. Yeah, I, I actually consider myself quite lucky in that sense. Like, uh, um, I think if you would simulate my poker career a couple of times, there's definitely a few, a few results in which I end up with no money or like quitting years ago. Like uh, at some point in my poker career, like always at the right moment, the right type of person seemed to come along or like always when I needed it, like sort of the right, the right type of thing seemed to happen. And like, uh, I'm obviously very grateful for that, but I also realized that that doesn't happen for everybody. Like uh, I, I can remember very clear moments within my poker career where I was sort of at the same level as some other guy and that guy might not be playing anymore. And, uh, it's, it's not because I had such a superior mindset or such a superior study habit. It was just like blind luck in whatever came along at what point. And I mean, there, there's like, it's in some sense, you attract this as well, right? And, and like, uh, you sort of live with this idea that like opportunities come along and you sort of have to be ready to take them. Um, and, and that's that's what did happen for me. But I do feel very lucky that these opportunities came along. Because, uh, because I imagine that there's quite a few scenarios in which they didn't. Yeah, it was interesting. I'm curious what Adam thinks of this as well. When you mentioned the word luck, I immediately was like, hmm, I, I, wouldn't, well, I wouldn't really label it as luck. And then you talked about, like, you attract that. Uh, I'm definitely more, I mean, can, can we label that as spiritual in that sense? Like, I feel like throughout a, a theme throughout your story is you've always seized opportunities that came along right maybe that other person that you were describing that was at the same point that opportunity also came along but he just didn't see it he didn't see it as an opportunity whereas i think you grab the opportunities as soon as they arise right you have a problem you look for a solution maybe he just has a problem and the, the solution comes by but he doesn't see it whereas you see it because you're looking for it right yeah, I mean, I mean, also in, in the sense of, of MVPs and just plain luck of, of hitting scores, it's like, uh, I, I think I've run significantly above EV in my lifetime. And okay, scoring the right time. And, uh, yeah, and also like the timing of sometimes of, of big scores was also very important to me. And like, uh, I mean, I can remember like a few significant moments in which, uh, you know, I fell down, I felt like sort of confidence was low and like, like for some reason, like very often, a big score would pop up. <laughs> like, like right when I, when I hit that threshold, where I was thinking, like, oh, maybe maybe this is not my place to be, or like maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I do feel lucky in, in that sense. Like, as as for the law of attraction, like I, I don't really have an opinion on that. Like, I, I don't think mm -hmm. the universe works in like a sort of give and take way. Uh, I, <laughs> I I don't really think the universe cares about if my aces hold up against kings or not, like, uh, I, I don't really believe in that sense. But I do believe that in, in the sense of like, the people you attract, like, mm -hmm. obviously, people are willing to invest more time into you and invest more energy, into you, which is a resource, if you mm -hmm. are willing to listen, and if you're willing to be curious, and if you're willing to treat that uh, advice with respect. Uh, like, uh, yeah, I find it hard to find the right word for it. Law of attraction, I also don't don't necessarily agree with, uh, in terms of how it's been, yeah, explained commercially. Uh, but I do like I don't have a good word for it. But I do I do believe that you know exactly when certain things arise, you're the type of person that will see it as opportunity and grab it where 
yeah, like I said, I think other people might miss it. How would you describe it, Adam? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say just based on everything we've laid out here today, we can see that he's got a good skill set of self-awareness and intuition, which allows him to uh, navigate his landscape better than other people. So yes, there's going to be some luck factors involved, but he's able to spot opportunities that other people would let slip by. So yeah, how much factors is luck? How much is him seeing the opportunities? It's like a, a mixed equation where it's hard to quantify. See, so, yeah, I think we can say there's some luck involved, but also uh, use a skill of self-awareness and intuition in the right moments to uh, seek inwards, to seek help, to look for opportunities, to even like put your ego aside. I think one of the things that was interesting early in the conversation was when you said you had the need to be right all the time. And then that's a really hard obstacle to overcome. Like you've got to put your ego aside and start looking for counter information that proves you wrong in order to learn. That's a stepping stone that a lot of people can't get past. So yeah, I think those attributes all come into like the umbrella of self-awareness for me. So uh, yeah, I think the self-awareness and the intuition that you fine tune throughout your career have allowed you to uh, ride your look a bit better than most people, yeah. but also to find opportunities that have been supportive of your of your quest. So that'd be my take. So, so going back to where you are now, uh, you are you know still recovering as you, as you said it right. You're not at uh, at at full power. Um, in terms of in the past, you were like chasing to become the best. So because the best was kind of, you know, your definition of success, what would now be sort of your definition of success? Like, what are you striving towards now? Is it like something that you go or is it more like I try to live Zen day to day or like how, how should we see that? I mean, like, um, uh, I, I sort of want to perform the best that I can within the parameters of me enjoying the process and me not taking any sort of compromise on my health. Like that's that's sort of the, the parameters I've set up for myself now. And wherever that leads me is very much a point of discovery at this point. Like that's that's really what I don't know, but I'm I'm just trying to keep an open mind about it and and not, you know, try to set too many things in stone. And there's also this sense where like I've I've noticed this a lot while playing recently is that your performance levels can actually go up because a very important thing like um, that I actually found out within this period is, is and that's something that was like a major obstacle uh, throughout my career before was that I felt like I couldn't completely perform at the level that I wanted to whenever like there was really big money at stake or whenever there was like a really high buy. And the reason why that is, is stress. It's like stress uh, has a direct effect on your cognitive abilities, on your abilities to think and to, to rationalize. And like, because I've now noticed this process and I now have like a lot more tools to relieve this, I think I could actually up like the level of performance a little bit, uh, just because the, the knowledge base is, is like the knowledge base is no different, but the performance, the, the, the execution base, the execution standard becomes higher. And, you know, I've, I've, I've read like a lot of interesting research and, and, and talks about this where like, you know, they, they have like a group of people uh, and one group, uh, like they run like a 400 meter. And to the one group, they say like, all right, run it at like a maximum capacity, run it as fast as you can. And to the other group, they say like, okay, run it at 85%. And the average finishing time for the 85% group would actually be higher. And like sort of that sense where like there's a little bit of relaxation within the mind and within the body actually allows you to, to access a much higher part 
or much bigger part of your cognitive capacity. And, and that's that's what I find to be a really interesting space to be in right now, is where I feel like, um, you know, sort of the rest and, and uh, the improved physical well-being would actually have like uh, a net positive result on my on my playing capacity. I mean, if it, it also sounds like when you're at, right, you were hoping, I remember at some point in the conversation, you were hoping for a big score, right? Because the big score would magically disappear, all your problems would disappear, right? If you would only get that score. So I can imagine if you get close to that score, let's say you reach the final table and it's like, oh my God, this is the moment. Everything I've ever wanted is on the line. Sounds quite stressful. Whereas probably if now you would be in the same situation, it's like, listen, I'm already really zen with myself. You know, I'm just here trying to play good. So there's less, like winning has a, a much smaller, it's less important for you in a different, you understand what I mean? It's it's still important, of course, but there's less dependent on it. Whereas in the other scenario, it was my happiness, my everything is dependent on this win. Whereas now it's like, yeah, it would be great, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, um, like it's also something that I'm noticing a lot because I'm now taking like a few young guys and, and coaching them and sort of guiding them in the process of becoming a really good high stakes regular. And like, um, uh, you just see the same mental blocks that I didn't see by, like, I didn't spot them by myself, but uh, I saw them in other people. And then I started reflecting on like this process of like, wait, actually, whenever I felt like in these high pressure situations, I, like if I, if I, if I look back on them now, like I, I actually had less cognitive ability. I, I was, I was thinking less clearly, like, uh, you know, I, I can, I can remember like, um, you know, when, when I first started playing 1Ks online and I would very often, like, I would bust, like, at the ninth, 10th, 11th spot and, and I would just always feel like it was due to bad luck. But I was actually just performing worse in those tournaments than I would in, like, a, a 109 tournament just because it meant so much to me, which increased the stress, which in, increased, like, the adrenaline and the cortisol, which actually blocks out your, your ability to think about something. Like, it's like, uh, you know, if... if if you put somebody, if you put a cognitive test to somebody, and they have to answer like ten simple questions, and you put them in a very stressful situation, they're just gonna do worse. They're just gonna do do worse on on such a test. And like so, for me, like a big part now is that I actually take a lot of time to make my decisions in high pressure situations, whereas previously I always felt like I needed to rush them. Um, uh, at least physically felt like I needed to rush them. Um, it's, it's really fun being able to to distribute this knowledge to to like other players to like guys I'm staking right now is because because the same thing happens to everybody and like not not everybody notices it it's like you just it's just harder to play your a game when the stakes are higher or when it means more it's, it's, it's just a fact of life and like like uh, right now like if you look at eight or nine years ago the skill gap between like the high the super high stakes or the best guys, and uh, the group below it was like huge. There was like a huge, huge skill gap. And, and so the best guys would be the guys with the most knowledge, who, who knew how to play poker the best, basically. But these days, the skill, the skill gap is much, much smaller. And like also the ability to research it is like, there's so many tools and resources available. So like a really big part comes down to execution. And especially in tournaments where like, 
you sort of you're constantly leveraging your <laughs> your money because like uh, all, constantly like the, the decisions just mean a hundred times as much at the end of the tournament than they mean at the beginning. So like to be able to perform uh, to the best of your capacity, even when it's very stressful and when when uh, when there's a lot going on, that that became like a really important skill set that I that I actually lacked in the past that I feel I now possess uh, in some sense. Was was it mainly so obviously what was it mainly the circumstances that changed or is it your like like your 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 perspective on the situation your mindset towards the situation like when you 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 mentioned that you coached what kind of advice do you then give if they are in those situations right because they cannot wait until their situ environment changes like yours yeah i mean i mean some part of it is experience i think like to just go through that situation a couple of times is, is really useful uh, that's, that's also why i think it would never be a great idea to buy pieces of somebody who's going to be playing super high rollers for the first time <laughs> like if i look back yeah. on it now, <laughs> oh, yeah, earlier yours come on yeah. it's like uh you know the people and and it, it differs from person to person like so some people are more affected by this and some people are less affected by this but uh uh yeah so like experience is a big one so like whenever you're moving up just make sure you have really small pieces of yourself and just Test the waters. And <laughs> oh wait, you're saying you should have small pieces in yourself, and you're saying nobody should buy pieces in you. That's kind of the situation uh -huh. we're in right now, right? Okay, just just so that I follow. That's a great advertisement for myself, right? There. <laughs> <laughs> right but you're experienced, right? So yeah, no, but like I'm I'm not experienced in like the super high rollers, for example. Like, uh, um, but yeah, so so experience is one part of it. The other one is, uh, you know. There, there's some very simple tricks to deal with this. It's like forcing yourself to take time is, is a really important time. It's a really important one. If you're playing online final tables, you always get like a time bank of like a 250, 40 seconds or something. If you notice you're almost never hitting that time bank, that probably means that you're rushing your decisions too much and you're not considering all the factors that you could have. Um, there, there's a there's some simple breathing exercises, just breathing correctly while you're playing is very, very important. It calms down the whole system. It calms down, uh, you know, low, lowers heart rate, lowers like the, the stress levels in your blood. It allows just for a lot more clarity. Like if you ever feel like you're playing and you feel like you're sort of, the, the information gets murky, where like you, you sort of, you're making a decision, but then you're second guessing yourself. And then you think like, oh, maybe I should do it. You know, like you, you're not following like a, a logical coherent steps of, of getting to a decision that that basic that usually means that that you just have too much stress in the system to make that decision and like uh, at that point it just becomes important like if you feel that just step away from the computer for one second you know just uh you know get a breath of fresh air uh, there's some there's some really great breathing exercises you can do while playing you know just just timing your breath just making uh, your exhale quite a bit longer than your inhale and it really just just calms the whole system down and that's when you can make a good decision yeah the body re re reacts very counterproductive in those kind of situations right it tenses up you automatically hold your breath in stressful situations without noticing it so yeah less breath uh, less oxygen to the brain at the moment you need it the most yeah 
and that's that's sort of the fun thing about poker right? that's that's why it is what it is because because yeah. like that's sort of the challenge it's like who can it's not it's not who like we're, we're not all solving math formulas and seeing who can make the most you know who, who can uh, uh, finish a calculation it's like who can finish a calculation within a time constraint and with like the psychological element of like there's a pressure mm -hmm. there of losing money and there's a pressure there of winning money and there's a you know there's a whole dynamic around it like that's that's why it's such a beautiful game at the same time yeah, because it's funny because money the, the money aspect and the pressure that I remember all the way in the beginning, you said that was actually one of the things that you liked about poker. Remember, play money, poker doesn't work. And in the end, it also kind of hurt you in a certain way. That's the, that's the way it is with most things, right? Like you're uh, <laughs> a little bit surprised, and then you get a lot of it, and it becomes it becomes damaging in some sense. Yes. And then you have to, you have to find your way of coping with that. Maybe. Yeah. So I think for me, what I'd like to know right now is what is your greatest challenge going forward? Or you could answer it in the way of what you're most excited about going forward. So you talked to us about the burnout and recovering from that. And then you're going back into some live tournaments with a lot of curiosity. Talk us through like at this stage of your career and your, your life, what are some of the challenges that poker still possesses for you or the things that excite you going forward? I mean, like, uh, because I started staking a few guys that became like a really nice challenge for me. Like uh, this idea of like, all right, there's there's this, like basically like a bunch of copies of me in a younger form. They're all making the same mistakes. They're all doing the same things, but at the same time, they're very smart guys. They're a little bit, uh, you know, they're sometimes very convinced of their own opinion and rightly so because they are smart. I like the the sort of this idea of like, how do I transfer this knowledge? How do I work with these people? Uh, how do I do this in a sense that it's still fun to me, that it's still enjoyable to me? Uh, that's that's like a really nice challenge I enjoy at the moment. Also, at the same time, like um, staking guys requires like you, you requ requires letting go of control a lot. Like like when you are playing yourself, you know you win or lose, you have yourself to blame. You you are the person in charge. You are the person responsible. Like I noticed when I started staking guys, like I almost you know they would be deep in a tournament and they would be doing something and like. My fingers would itch, you know, like I would be railing that and I would be like, ah, oh, like you're, this is exactly the kind of stuff we've talked about. Like you're making the same mistake over and over again. And and like, like almost railing horses you had, like both a financial and emotional investment in was getting way more stressful than playing yourself because, because like, uh, because I was a bit of a control freak. I didn't know this about myself, but apparently I am. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, that's a big challenge for me is, is learning to work with that, learning to like, all right, you, you have these guys that you're working with, you trust them, you know, trust the process, trust them to do well. And, uh, you know, don't be so invested in, <laughs> in, 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 in getting caught up into the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I rec I recognize a lot of that. Uh, I remember when I started switch from playing for my for myself basically and having sort of other players play for you if we can just name it like that it's indeed like suddenly yeah you indeed suddenly feel way less control right especially i know you and me we we take our performance quite seriously and you know we try to and then if you see that someone else doesn't it's like oh yeah it's interesting it, it will get better at time mm -hmm. yeah, yeah I've, I've noticed that as well 
and it's also a good life lesson, you know, like uh, uh, the, the world is a very hard place to control. So like, uh, you know, just getting to work with that a little bit and uh, accepting that some things are out of your hands and uh, figuratively let the chips fall where they may. That's a, that's a pretty good good life lesson right there. And technically speaking, at the moment, yours, Rice, who, what, 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 what can I wake him up for? Poker related? What are you excited about? Playing poker yourself? Oh, yeah, what am I excited about? I'm, uh, I recently uh, uh, started improving my heads up game a lot. Like, uh, started to put like a lot of study time in there because, uh, you know, you're playing super high stakes. Even online, like the, the, the stakes that are available are, are very high, but they're all small field. So like the the, the frequency with which, which you get get to a heads up phase is uh, like it's way more often than, than it used to be. So it becomes like a really important spot. And like because the heads up plays so much differently to all the other spots, uh, it's like a sort of understudied area. So uh, I always like to find these spots where like all right, sort of what is everybody doing and where is everybody lacking and to, to, to really dive into that spot where like okay this is this is where I feel like I can make some money against the rest. So yeah, heads up is one area where where I think that's currently the case. Where like it, it's it's a good time investment uh, area wise to 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 study now. And uh, yeah, poker is like uh, yeah, poker just got legalized in the Netherlands. So like uh, I'm uh, I'm just playing the schedule a bit, seeing seeing how it develops. And uh, I mean, I, I sort of enjoy the online grind. Like, I, I find it really comfortable. But I'm also looking forward to the live tournaments. But uh, it's all on the contagion that it that it's actually uh, that's actually possible. It's probably also quite plus EV, right? Quite a big pay jump between second and first place. In heads up, you mean in tournaments? Yeah, in heads up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it's huge. And like, uh, especially because a lot of the, the tournaments are progressive knockouts now. So like, then like sort of the last remaining heads up becomes like 33% of the tournament. Or something. <laughs> like, um, yeah, they're, they're huge. And like, they're really high EV spots because you basically get to play a heads up sit and go against a non-specialist for like a huge amount of money. So like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. like the variance is obviously huge in those. But, you know, if you can craft out like a couple percent ROI in that situation, you, you're talking like ten, tens of thousands of euros uh, on a yearly basis. So like... Uh, I have a feeling other people are going to become heads of specialists now after you said that. Yeah. And like, uh, and, and I found live poker, like live tells, I found like a sort of understudied area. Oh, I, I'm very curious about that. So when I'm in the Netherlands, we definitely talk about that because I'm very curious about that area as well. That's a that's that's an area like especially because I'm considering to play a lot of live again in the future. It's like an area that will be very interesting for me to to dive into a bit. Like I was always a bit arrogant about it. Like life tells that's just that's just for the bad players and like guys who don't know what they're do, what they're doing. And um, I mean that was actually because like a lot of the people who claimed to be really good at lifetimes were just very bad players with very poor results. <laughs> like, uh, um, uh, so, so I never really took it seriously, but, uh, but I see now that there's actually a lot of merit to it and that it could actually be quite interesting to, to play around with a bit, but it's, but it's an area that I never specialized in. So it will be quite new for me. 
It's funny also what you mentioned with the you saying that a lot of the tournaments now become progressive knockouts. That's different than not normal knockout. Yeah, nor a normal knockout is like you just have a set bounty on you. So like, say you play a play a five hundred tournament, there's a two hundred fifty dollar bounty for knocking you out, um, and it doesn't really, and like the progressive one is where, like half of the bounty goes on your uh, goes to your bounty and half of the bounty goes to, goes to your goes to your cashier. So like uh, the the, the, bount the bounty on your head increases. We already talked about how complicated tournaments are compared to, for example, cash games. But they keep on making it more complicated, huh? Yeah, yeah so there, there, there's infinite variables. Like, uh, uh, like seriously, if, if, if you were to sort of use a supercomputer to 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 solve every single spot in, in, in tournament poker compared to every single spot in cash games, I, I think you would need like uh, like a like hundred or a thousand times more powerful computer to, to really uh, get get to the same result at the end. <laughs> I, 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 I believe that. I believe that. But that makes it a lot more fun as well, of course. So, <laughs> it's like a lot more to think about. Lot less and especially, I think, where you are now, you can appreciate it more, right? Because, you know, you're in a very comfortable place. You feel very good. You know, you... So you can actually enjoy the complication. Whereas I can imagine that if you're still more in a struggling phase of your career, like, oh, they only make it difficult and it was already so hard and I cannot move up in a sense. Then it's, you're kind of fighting fighting the reality. Whereas if you're in a more comfortable position, you can appreciate the beauty of it, right? Because again, the outcome matters less. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's also just really fun. And that's, that's like a huge part in keeping your motivation and, and keeping uh, the sort of intensity with which you're willing to play is like, if something is no longer fun to you, then it, then all of it just becomes such a drag and it just becomes such a grind. And like the fact that there is so many variables to think about, just, uh, you know, you're just always working on, on a puzzle that's impossible to solve for you. And once you've accepted that it's impossible to solve, it actually becomes quite fun to try and solve it for you. And then when you're close to completing the puzzle, they'll invent another form of poker tournaments, which is even more complicated. I've, I've never felt close to completing the puzzle, but like, <laughs> I don't know about you. But like... No, no, me neither, me neither. The puzzle keeps on growing, right? The puzzle, the puzzle keeps on getting bigger the more you learn. You think like, okay, these are the edges of the puzzle. Let me just complete it now. And then you're at the edge, like, fuck, there's, it, it just grew again. How does it every time become bigger? Uh, I mean, I, mean I, I know for myself that whenever I feel like I'm close to completing the puzzle, that actually means I'm becoming close-minded. <laughs> yeah, it's a <laughs> Like that, that's when the arrogance gets too high of a level and the curiosity at too low. I've got one final question. So I think for a lot of low slash mid stakes players, the thought of moving to high stakes, whatever that high stakes definition, definition for the, is for them, it can seem like a real big jump. So for yourself, did you notice any mindset shifts you had to make to go from being a mid stakes player to a high stakes player? Was there any sort of transformation or important mental jumps you had to make to mentally start playing those higher games. Yeah, I always, always like a, an important factor for me to consider was like uh, when I first moved up the high stakes, I, I would play very paranoid. I would, I would play with like, all right, I just moved up in stakes, and now I'm sitting with all these geniuses, and like, uh, like every time they would do something, I would start second guessing myself, like, uh, you know, oh, did he bluff me there, or like. Whereas, like, if I would just be in my comfort zone, I, I wouldn't think twice about it, and that that would make, um, 
you know, if you start guess, second guessing yourself, like your your performance levels are gonna drop uh, drop to the floor. So that's a really it's really important not to be paranoid and like to realize like all right, is is just some guy with two cards, you know, who's trying to play a game, and he's there's there's not like this wizard and uh, the, the like sort of the difference between uh, this incredibly great player and this sort of mediocre player you know is not that big as you think it is so it's, it's very important not to play paranoid like uh, to sort of recognize when you are and if you are playing paranoid like you should do either one of two things is like don't play those games like just not playing games that you're not comfortable in is, is a good advice i think and like uh, uh, there's always this focus on moving up but i think like when you know you're ready you'll feel it and you'll feel comfortable in those games like if you're playing in a game where you don't feel the edge it's very likely it shouldn't be a game that you're playing in. so like uh, um, uh, yeah sometimes people look to move up from like a, a level of necessity they think like oh yeah i need to move up as soon as possible whereas i think the truth the opposite is actually true like, like you know when you're ready and uh, you'll feel it when you're ready and like um and yeah, and to not be so paranoid, like, uh, you know, like, so, and sometimes when you're feeling paranoid, sort of try to monitor those things. Like, uh, you know, if you feel like your, your, uh, your CBAT strategy is not working in the higher stakes, you know, look at your own data to, to see if you're actually performing worse than uh, in, in, uh, in mid stakes. I also feel like reflecting on your own data is, is a huge tool to do it, to do anyway. Like I would often do this with my horses. Is like uh, I would filter for their mid stakes games and I would filter for their high stakes games, and they would show just vastly different stats. You know, they would just be either much tighter or much more aggressive in in the higher stakes games. It's, it's because because uh, they're they're focusing so much on the spot. They they constantly think like, oh, this is my most important tournament. This is the one where I really got to go for it. Whereas actually, like if you're moving up, you should just you know lay back a bit you know and, and see what develops and it, it actually makes sense to 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 just really stick to your baseline strategy yeah. and to really stick to the thing that you believe is good and like mid stakes or like your lower stakes is actually more area to explore and to discover mm. instead of the other way around it is actually quite common indeed. it's like when they then move up they feel like now they have to suddenly do suddenly do something special in order to win and i often say like the reason Okay, you are now allowed to move up is because you played in a certain way. Then it makes no sense whatsoever to suddenly change the way you play when moving up. No, you deserve to move up because of the way you played. So just play your own game, right? And indeed, people get too paranoid and start doing all, you know, they kind of force aggression because they feel like, or, you know, they start to get stations because here at higher stakes, they do find enough bluffs in this spot, right? Uh, yeah, but it's actually very funny because paranoid, being paranoid is actually... Uh, a symptom of stress, too much stress. Like mm. if, if your system is overloaded with stress, you become paranoid because mm. uh, you're 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 so active. You're like uh, like that's what stress stress is, right? It's it's sort of the warning signal to the body, like something's gonna happen. So like being paranoid is just a result uh, sometimes I think of of just being more stressful in the situation, and like mm. uh, and and that just has a cognitive decline. Like that that's where you notice the cognitive decline is like. A paranoid decision-making process is not a good decision-making process. Yeah. So like, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that's a very, I feel like that's something a lot of players struggle with, 
Yeah. And I think that's a very interesting area to discover, to, to, to explore a bit greater. Yeah, very good advice. And yeah, I like that you paired two things together there. One was that kind of self-awareness of, am I being paranoid? Is my game kind of deviating? And then also you paired that with the players you were staking to get them to check their sample sizes, their mid-stakes games versus their high-stakes games. So they've got that kind of data element as well, as well as that kind of feel-based element of that paranoia or not feeling comfortable in the games. So yeah, I think if you can pair both those together, it could be very good warning signs to uh, avoid those games or say you're not ready to play those games at that stage of your, your career. So yeah, great answer. So Rene, have you got any parting questions for Yuris before we let him go? Was there anything you would still like to share? We've got to ask you that. You know, it's our first podcast, so... Uh... <laughs> um, no, like, uh, uh, recently I've, I've been writing a lot about, like, this past period and, like, my experiences with burnout. And, um, like, I was sort of curious if people would be interested if I would publish anything of that because, like, there, there's just, like, a... Um, uh, there, there's two points to it for me where, like, I feel like sharing some of it could be helpful to some people. But at the same time, I just I don't want to put out like this sort of. I like scare people <laughs> off. Like I'm never becoming a poker player after reading this story of sadness and difficulty and struggle. And like, I, I would just be curious if, if people would be interested in that sort of content. And uh, then it's up to me to decide if I uh, if I if I'll start publishing that kind of content. So, yeah. All right. I'm 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 personally uh, uh, a favor of uh, sharing, especially like you said, if you feel like, you know, you're at a stage of your career where you have learned something that could help other people, and you feel motivated to share that. So I think it's also like, do you think this will help a lot of players? Right? Mm -hmm. You think it's a topic that doesn't get talked about often? Yeah, it's it's, it's like after I've had the experience, I I actually. You know, approached a few people and I asked them, like, like, has this ever occurred to you? Or like, does this happen to you? Like, I, it, it turned out that like a lot of these things were much more common within the poker community than I expected them to be. And there's also like this thing about the high stakes scene is like, there, there's a lot of like, uh, like performance substance abuse in that sense. Like, you know, people are using heart rate blockers or like uh, anti-anxiety medication or Adderall to to perform well. And like um, that's that's something that that I feel doesn't get talked about enough. And I would be interested if that conversation would be opened up a little bit more about like uh, sort of the difference between the image that we're projecting and like oh we're all super successful high stakes players, but we don't really talk about the struggles that we face uh, when 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 people are not watching, so to speak. I think there's definitely a uh, I would say a, a need out there. Um, so yeah, but we can leave a comment if for people listening and are interested in that, shoot us a message, leave a comment. Um, then uh, let's motivate yours uh, to share his uh, story so he can help help the poker community become more mentally healthy, physically healthy as well. Can we uh, follow yoga classes with Mr. Yours? My girlfriend is a yoga teacher, so yeah. You're more than welcome to book a class with her. All right. <laughs> I would be happy to. <laughs> All right, we're yours. Uh, I want to thank you a lot for coming on. And uh, you've been a great guest. You've exceeded uh, my expectations. Yeah, I mean, it was great talking to you guys. And uh, thanks for the inspiring questions. Uh,
So it's not like we covered a lot of ground there. <laughs> I feel so as well. So thank you all for listening as well, audience. Uh, any suggestions, shoot us a message, leave a comment, and we'll see you in the next episode. Anything you would like to say, Adam, to close off? Thank you, Yuris, again for your time and your wisdom. And yeah, see you guys at the next episode. So Adam, what were your main takeaways of well, our good friend Yuris Rice, a.k.a. Bill Lewinsky? Well, that was a great conversation. I think we went very deep at times, but we got a lot of wisdom from Yuris, and I think the audience will get a lot of benefits from that. So myself, some of the things I was really uh, fascinated about was his approach to uh, working through his problems through the skill set of self-awareness. So very often we saw him hit obstacles and downswings, and he went internal to either reflect or to uh, look at his intuition versus his biases. He would very often turn to a network of people to help them find answers, which again, self-aware people very often turn to others to help them, whereas people have got more of an ego or lack self-awareness often try and solve their own problems. So yeah, it was really fascinating to see like that skill set coming up over and over again. Another thing that was really a good takeaway for me was the way he approached his intuition as like this fine-tuning skill that he wanted to uh, cultivate, but he didn't want to like over-cultivate. So he didn't want to just listen to his yeah. intuition fully. And when I probed him, are you an intuitive player? He didn't want to say he was because he classed himself as like on the fence of both. I'm intuitive, but I'm GTO. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting how he's spent a lot of time trying to cultivate this inner feeling of what his intuition is, but also understanding what his biases feel like on the other side. So yeah, I think that was a, I've never heard it discussed in that way or a player talk about the work they put into that attribute. So yeah, I see the, the main things I, well, one of the best things I took away from that was the ability to uh, look for your uh, work on self-awareness when things are getting tough and go deeper and deeper internally. And then also to uh, look for answers from other people and then to cultivate that skill set of intuition and yeah, go side by side with um, your kind of cognitive abilities. And then finally, I think the, the last thing was the way he talked about his burnout and how he came out the other side of that. And again, self-awareness skill set. But this time he talked about getting more in tune with the body, which I think was very under talked about as poker players. We're very often cognitive, logical people and we neglect the body until it screams out with a panic attack or anxiety. So yeah. uh, I think it's really nice to hear him uh, reconnect with his body, but also to uh, yeah, basically learn valuable tools going forward that he'll be able to use long-term. So hopefully other players going through tough times will be able to get more in tune with their own body and use some like physical practices to uh, yeah, basically balance that a bit better. So yeah, to kind of, yeah, it's interesting. I like that you basically, you're trying to become a high six poker player. You know, you're building a certain skill set. Then suddenly in other areas, that skill set that you've built so hard for, you know, like the kind of, you know, ignoring a little bit what your body's trying to tell you, right? What, what he was saying. And then suddenly that kind of backfires, right? That doesn't really work uh, anymore. So I thought that was very interesting. And also to become very conscious uh, of what you actually want, right? Mm -hmm. For example, he felt that given the fact that he was competitive and he felt like, oh, you're a high-six player, so you have to play these high-six tournaments, right? You have to try to become the best. Uh, but that you really have to... Um, yeah, pause for a second and ask yourself why, right? Why am I trying to to achieve this? Uh, and I thought that was very interesting. And I've, I've done a couple of, con yeah, a little bit counterintuitive things, maybe decisions in my career uh, because I stopped and was like, okay, what do I actually want, right? What is my definition of success? And I might make different choices, choices that were against the, yeah, the 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 societal norm in poker, 
right? That's very EV driven. You just, yeah. it's quite simple. You make the decision that's most plus EV, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I found that very, uh, very interesting as well. And yeah. indeed, yeah, like how, how he managed to learn from his mistakes. But I have a feeling that this is going to be an uh, ongoing, ongoing pattern uh, throughout when we get more guests on, right? That they, will, they are self-aware. They know how to reflect on their mistakes. They know how to get better. Um, so yeah, I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm very happy how the first episode went, and uh, curious to uh, have more guests on to s- spot the patterns that make them so successful. Yeah, me too. Can't wait for the next guest and for the audience. Hopefully, you've enjoyed our first episode. As you might be able to guess, we're freestyling it just a little bit. We're gonna probably get a bit more crisp as we go through it. But hopefully, you guys have gained some good knowledge, some good takeaways. And yeah, let us know in the comments and the feedback from this episode. So when we bring new guests on, we know what to what to ask them. All right, guys. See you in the next episode. Thank you.